The following is a presentation of A's Cast, your free 24-7 nonstop destination for A's baseball. Go to athletics.com slash A's Cast to download the app. Restrictions apply. This is A's Cast Live, your comprehensive look at the Oakland Athletics. Watch the left field deep. Bam going back. Looking up. He will watch it fly. And 29 other MLB clubs. 2-2 pitch on Trout, and he blasts one. Way back. It's one out. So he's your home run derby champion. Join us as we take you inside the baseball universe. From spin rate to juiced balls to game-changing moments, we have you covered. Spend your afternoon with us next from the town, only on A's Cast Live. A's Cast Live. Here's Chris Townsend. How is everybody doing? I hope you are doing well. And everybody's being safe out there. Yes, this is A's Cast Live. We'll be with you for the next couple hours. Martin Gallegos from MLB.com is going to join us at 1.30. The great Ron Washington. Wash is going to join us at 2 o'clock. And then how about Ray Fossey? If it's Wednesday, that means it's a Fossey day. And watching Fossey last night, how about the guns on Ray Fossey back in 1973? And he almost he almost legged out a chopper to shortstop. So we'll talk to Ray at 2.30, and then we're going to relive what was a magical night at the Coliseum. When you think of great nights of being at the ballpark and watching greatness, and I'll never forget just the buildup and the ending, and it was just an April night, but Sean Manaya and his no-hitter against the Boston Red Sox was legit. Sean Minaya is going to join us today at 3 o'clock to relive this great moment in A's history. And then we got a real treat for you coming up at 3.30. This man was a part of not one, not two, but three championships. And he was a great defensive player. Dick Green is going to join us. So you want to talk about a jam-packed show that we have for you today. Gallegos, Wash, Fossey, Manaya, Dick Green, all coming your way. And we always need to say hello to the commander, the man that makes this all happen. Commander Cody, how are you? I'm good, Tommy. I'm looking forward to a lot of the stuff we're going to discuss today. And hearing from Anaya and Dick Green and having Ray Fossey on the program via video, I can't wait to see his green screen once again. Ray Fossey talking about Ray Fossey. That's going to be a trip. And Monty Moore, did you see – I texted you and, and the uh, the Italian stallion Joey yesterday. Uh, did you actually get to see the pregame of Monty Moore's red suit? For game one of the 1973 World Series? So I missed the Mon- – I, you texted me about the Monty suit, and I turned it on right after, and that's when I saw the standing O for Willie Mays, the yeah. Hank, the Henry Aaron first pitch before he broke Babe Ruth's record. He was two behind him at that time. Just all the nostalgia going around that. You had all the Hall of Famers with with Roland Fingers and Jim Jim Hunter and – and uh, Tom Seaver, it just all that stuff was just great to see. And then I'm kind of sad I missed Monty Moore's red suit. 
Monty Moore was pimping the red suit with the red tie. I was like, this is awesome. How about Willie Mays? In his first at-bat, he's, what, 42 years old? Gets a base hit in the 5.5 hole between third and short. Gets to first base and pulls his hat out of his back pocket. I don't know how many of you noticed that. But that was like, wait, what? I had to rewind that. So Willie Mays kicks off his helmet and gets to first base. And then with nothing on his head, pulls out a Mets cap out of his back pocket because he's now not going to run the bases with a helmet. I mean, that was like, that really happened? Did you notice that? I did. I thought they explained, I thought Kurt Gowdy and them were explaining that, or no, it wasn't Kurt Gowdy, but they were explaining on the broadcast that something about the NL, they they didn't have to wear, they only had to wear a batting helmet in the box when they're batting, but they didn't have to wear on the base pass or something like that. I thought that's what they were explaining, but I did notice that. Uh, Willie Mays, 42 years old, getting a base hit. He's one for four in a game, but just seeing Willie Mays play in a game at 42 years old, not with the Giants, was just odd in itself. Yeah, you know, I, 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 I think for a lot of people, just seeing Willie Mays in a New York Mets uniform was a shocking thing. You know, the thing that, you know, I, I really noticed, and I've noticed now because I've got to watch two games with him in it, is really how spectacular Ken Holtzman is. Ken Holtzman is not somebody that I think we cherish enough in our A's world. This left-hander, you know, the trade with Chicago for Rick Monday, the first ever number one pick in the MLB draft out of Arizona State, I don't think we cherish this guy enough. And I've interviewed him, I think, one time, maybe one or two times. And it, he he has shrunk. He is not He's not the 6'2", tall, skinny left-hander he once was. And a nice man. It was great interviewing him in the past. I, I might be able to dig it up. But this man for the A's was greatness. You look at his time here, 1972. He appeared in 39 games, 37 starts, went 19 and 11 with a 2.51 ERA. 1973, he was 21 and 13 and started 40 games through 297 and a third innings. That's greatness. 1974, he went 19 and 17 with a 3.07. How do you lose 17 games with a 3.07 ERA? He started 39 games. Well, he pitched in 39 games, 38 starts. Cody, you tell me, how do you lose 17 games and have a 3.07 ERA? Uh, well, that that just shows how dominant you were, and your offense wasn't scoring many runs, which is the argument I always make about Jacob Degrom. Ken Holtzman, the modern day, the uh, yesteryear Jacob Degrom, apparently. Except Degrom doesn't always have the losses, but Holtzman, what did you say was nineteen and seventeen? So he re- he registered a, a decision in thirty six of thirty eight starts. When do you ever see that in Major League Baseball? Now, how many guys yeah, do you yeah. see have that happen? Tell me the last time Degrom threw almost two hundred ninety innings. 
Uh, yeah. Do we yeah, see? Yeah. I don't think we see anybody go to over 250 innings if if we're lucky. Yeah. Then the, the, we'll only have. I mean, how many guys? I think it was two seasons ago. We only had like seven guys throw over 200 innings, and like 214 led the league. And then 1975, he was 18 and 14 with a 3.14 ERA, and once again started 38 games. This guy was dominant. And, and, and to watch him pitch, it's just, it's effortless. It's that, it's that just loosey-goosey, let it go. And when he drops the hammer, the curveball, because he really is just challenging you with fastballs. And I don't, you know, we don't see that anymore. To where a left-handed pitcher just gets up there and just challenges you pitch after pitch after pitch with a fastball. And when he throws the curveball, guys are so off balance because it, it just it comes out of nowhere. It's devastating. I gotta say, watching Kenny Holtzman pitch now in two games is really and and, and you know what I've talked about with Raleigh Fingers, and you saw it again in the game last night the dominance of Raleigh fingers. But I, I got to say, I don't know about you, Cody, that, that one of the guys I've been, you know, supremely impressed by has been the stuff that Kenny Holtzman brings out to the mound. And I don't know why in A's history, we don't talk about this guy more. He, uh, he was, he's special. And I'm, I'm trying to baseball reference is going slow on me, but I'm pulling up his postseason stats in his career in the postseason, he's six and four with a two thirty ERA. He's pitching seventy innings. That'd be twelve games started, and he has let's see how many strikeouts. He has thirty nine strikeouts and eighteen blocks. I, I think that we don't give him the, his due because you know we all think about catfish and you know how great Raleigh was. Now Holton went what five innings last night? Well, last night, but last night forty something years ago, he went five innings, and then Raleigh came in. For just a you know casual three and a third as a closer, uh, you know everyday you know everyday stuff for your closer. Although he didn't close the game, but Raleigh came in to, to protect the lead and you know keep the game close because it was it was a close game. But yeah, I don't think that Holtzman gets the honors that Catfish does and Vida. But everyone we've talked to, either you know the historic players, or, you know the legendary players from these teams, or modern day guys that, that you know that play for the, they've all mentioned Kenny Holtzman and. and I don't think the A's win three World Series without him and that trade they did for, you know, sending Rick Monday to the Cubs for him. I don't think – I think he's a huge part that needs to be uh, honored a little more. I'm with you on that 100%. And something that I noticed last night on the broadcast, the fact that Monty Moore is on the broadcast, so they bring the local guy in for the home games. So the local guy will do TV for the home games – and then the local guy on the road does the road games nationally. And talking about Raleigh Fingers, I don't know how many of you noticed this, but they taught Raleigh Fingers throws the baseball from all different points, right? I didn't read so so we've learned now a lot about Raleigh. As I kind of broke him down from the 72 World Series, where he against right-handers is a three-quarters guy and even can drop down sidearm with his slider. But I learned something 
about Raleigh last night from Monty Moore that makes him even more devastating. What is that? I'm going to tell you next, right here on A's Cast Live. Streaming from the town, A's Cast Live continues with Chris Townsend. All right, Martin Gallegos is going to join us coming up here at the top of the hour. And MLB.com has done this uh, video with Marcus Simeon and Jesus Lazardo, a tradition where veterans take rookies and buy them suits. Because a lot of these guys, they don't have suits. And when you're in the big leagues, traditionally, you're rolling around in suits. FYI, guys aren't wearing suits anymore to the ballpark. But uh, it's a tradition, and Marcus Simeon takes Jesus Lazardo shopping. We'll talk to uh, Martin Gallegos about that and much, much more. We'll get to the Raleigh. So essentially yesterday, if you're watching last night on NBC California, you see that Raleigh Fingers, and we do have some breaking news. We're going to get to that in a moment. That Raleigh Fingers goes traditional straight over the top against left-handed hitters. So you have this reliever that can throw the ball from anywhere which is crazy. I, I, I would love to get Scott Emerson's opinion on this because against right-handers, for the majority of the time, your release point is going to be three quarters and even drop down sidearm. And then against lefties, you're now going to go straight over the top. So essentially, you've got no idea where Raleigh Fingers is going to be releasing the ball from. You want to talk about greatness and a weapon? The more I watch Raleigh Fingers, the more I go, oh, my God. This guy's incredible. He's somebody I don't think we celebrate enough also. Speaking of Kenny Holtzman. I mean, Raleigh Fingers, hey, Eck was great. Eck's a Hall of Famer. Eck's not going three innings. But the difference with Eck what makes X special. And he and John Smoltz, uh, Smoltzy, they're the only two guys, is that they were successful as starters and closers. Smoltz more a starter, less closer. Eck more closer, less starter. But they did both, and they were both legit. I don't know. I mean, like, we really have to look up Goose Gossage. And I know Goose was, was good. I don't know if Goose threw as many innings as Raleigh Fingers. Really, Raleigh Fingers is the guy that changed the position. And I'm looking up Goose. And, and once again, Goose was terrific. Former A, by the way. Uh, but I'm looking at his innings. Yeah, he didn't throw as many innings. I'm looking at innings. Well, you know what? Let me take that back. Goose threw 1,809 in a third innings. That's more than Raleigh. It's more, but he pitched 22 years. Goose Gossage, I mean, he's another guy. You look at his career, 
Goose Goose had a, Goose had twenty nine starts though <laughs> with the Chicago White Sox in nineteen seventy six. Goose had, had thirty seven starts in his career. But you look at these these, these old school guys. And how they came in and how dominant they were for multiple innings. Uh, Goose's war is 41 point. I, war does not do pitchers, let alone relievers, justice. Yeah, Raleigh's is 25.6. But you look at his numbers and you go, okay, this is crazy. I, I, I mean, the fact that Raleigh can come in and throw three-plus innings in a World Series game, you think about – you think about how pitchers are, are tired at the end of the season. I mean, we've seen that with A's bullpens. And Raleigh, Raleigh's not tired. Raleigh's giving you a three and a third in a World Series game. After he's appeared in 70-something games. I mean, watching that last night was just like, this is unbelievable. Nobody does that. I'm going back to Raleigh's stats here. I mean, you think about a, a reliever giving you three innings. In 1973, Raleigh appeared in 62 games. He started two games. And Raleigh is going to be like the only reliever you see going forward now in the 1974 World Series that we're going to be airing on NBC California and also on A's cast. And we'll have the broadcast on Thursday night starting at 8 o'clock here on A's cast and also on NBC California. Ken and I will get you ready for the game at 7.30. Raleigh appeared in 76 games that led the league in 1974. And he's he's like the only reliever you're going to see as the A's just mow through the Los Angeles Dodgers. And it, it, think about how dumb it was for the Dodgers to pop off. The Dodgers basically saying, yeah, yeah, I mean, maybe Catfish, maybe Reggie could play on our team. But the majority of the guys on the A's couldn't even play on our team. And the A's mow them down in five games. Thanks for coming. And then Ray Fossey will tell us again how Don Sutton threw at him at an old-timers game because he went yard off of him in the World Series. But we do have some breaking news. It's kind of a letdown. You thought it would be more, but it's not what what we thought it was going to be. Cody, tell us exactly where we are. It's been announced. Finally, the punishment has come down on the Boston Red Sox. Live from the ABC Sports Desk in New York, I'm Chris Townsend. So Major League Baseball finished its investigation and it came out today. Boston Red Sox video replay uh, system operator JT Watkins has been suspended without pay for one year and stripped the team of its second round pick in this year's amateur draft after they completed their investigation into allegations the team illegally stole signs during the 2018 season. Now, former Red Sox manager Alex Cora, who was fired earlier this year, 
in January, is suspended for the 2020 season, but only for his role in the case with Houston, where he served as the bench coach. So JT Watkins, the video replay system operator. Never heard of him. Suspended one year without pay, and they lost their second round pick in this year's amateur draft after after Major League Baseball finished their investigation into the allegations that the 2018 Boston Red Sox illegally stole signs during the season. Okay, so Alex Cora is suspended for what he did in Houston, not in Boston? Correct. And then a guy no one's ever heard of and a second-round pick? That's it? That's what that's what they that's what the report says. So it looks like a lower-level employee suffered, as uh, Jeffrey Luno referred to everyone as lower-level employees. I guess Alex Cora and the Red Sox felt that way, but... Yeah, so suspended for a year without pay. JT Watkins, the video replay coordinator. I can't tell you how ridiculous that is. You're admitting Boston cheated. You're admitting that they did in Boston what they did in Houston. You're punishing a guy at this point in a shortened season that you already know about. You're going to only punish him for this year and not what he did in Boston for what he did in Houston. You're going to take away a second-round pick that nobody cares about. Sorry, baseball front offices, but second-round picks in Major League Baseball are pretty insignificant in the greater scheme of professional sports. And you're going to suspend the the replay guy? Wow. There's more. I, I scroll down a little bit in the story. Oh, I, I can't. Oh, this has got to be. Baseball. Oh, baseball. Com- Go ahead. I can't imagine <laughs> if you've if, if you've suspended the replay guy, what, what, what possibly could you do more? Baseball Commissioner Rob Manfred wrote in his report that he does not believe Cora was aware of Watkins' actions and would not impose an additional discipline. As with the Astros investigation, the Red Sox players who testified to Major League Baseball were not punished by the league. Now, Manfred wrote in this report that Watkins, on at least some occasions during the 2018 regular season, utilized the game feeds in the replay room in violation of MLB's regulations to revise signed sequence information that he had permissibly provided to players prior to the game, but his actions, unlike the Astros scheme, was far more limited in scope and impact. Now, Manfred wrote that he did not find Cora, his coaching staff, the front office or most of the players on the team knew or should have known that Watkins was utilizing in-game video to update the information that he had learned from his pregame analysis. Interesting. I find that interesting. I really do. Uh, I, I, I mean, that's embarrassing. That's literally embarrassing. Major League Baseball – New, you know what? Not Major League Baseball. New York is tone deaf. They're in their bubble, and they don't get it. And if you think the fan base has any confidence in New York decisions, 
and I hate to say it, and I and I know, I, I understand, you know, where 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 we all lie underneath Major League Baseball, but when you suspend someone like Tom Brady, Tom Brady, Tom Brady is the greatest football player of all time, in the biggest sport in the world, and you suspend him. You punish him. That that that's a statement. That's a real statement. When you suspend the video replay guy and take away a second round pick, and you know they were cheating, that's not. They they don't they don't want to deal with this anymore. Is what they're telling you. They're basically telling you, we don't want to deal with this. We'll take out Luno. We'll take out Hinch. We'll take out Beltron. We'll take out Cora and a video guy. Everybody else, you're good. Oh, we'll take around the first round. We'll take away the first round pick, the second round pick for the Astros. And then we'll take a second round pick from the Red Sox. All right. We're done. We know other teams are doing it, but we're not going to investigate them. We're just going to move on. We're just going to move on. And we're going to show you that if you guys do it, are we going to actually, are we actually going to take out the cheaters? No, we can't do that because we're worried about the players union. We're trying to play nice with the players' union. We'll take out the guys who didn't hit and who didn't relay the signs. Was A.J. Hinch banging on a trash can? Nope. But we're going to take him out. Was Jeffrey Luno banging on a trash can? Nope. We'll take him out. The guys who actually banged on the trash can, we're going to allow you to keep your contract, we're going to allow you to make millions of dollars, and we're going to allow you to cheat. At least the NFL had the guts to, to to suspend Tom Brady, arguably the greatest football player of all time, in a sport way bigger than Major League Baseball. You're going to go after the video guy? Players are great. Hey, J.D. Martinez, you cheated. Keep making that $20 million a year. Mookie Betts. Well, I would not stand for Mookie Slander. Wow, Mookie, he you was, won the MVP. Yeah, he did win the MVP that year. He was really good. You won the MVP. You guys won the World Series. How how nice are those World Series rings? Sean and I did no hit him still, though. But the game was in Oakland. It was not in Boston. So, literally, you had the 2017 and 2018 World Series champions cheat, and you did nothing to them. You said, congratulations, keep your rings, keep your millions, and we're just going to we're gonna go after the guys who actually didn't cheat. Managers, GMs, and the video guy. Unbelievable. I mean, unbelievable. Martin Gallegos from MLB.com joins us. Martin, how do you feel the Boston Red Sox that the suspensions come down and the big hit is, we're going to go after the video guy and only your second-round pick. Are you kidding me? Yeah, uh, that was 
I think I think everybody was shocked. Um, you know, I was certainly expecting a little bit, a, a lot more of a of a heavier punishment. As were people around the league uh, that I, you know, just kind of casually reached out to uh, in the aftermath of it. It's, it's, it all happened pretty recently here, but I know the people that I have talked to about it are just, you know, kind of stunned here. Um, I mean, after you look at um, what what was uh, you know the allegations and and and, and the uh, information that was out there um, over the past year or so. Um, to see that, that that was the biggest punishment, it's uh, certainly a surprise to, to everybody. Yeah, and then for Alex Cora, they're, they're suspending him for what he did in Houston and not what happened in Boston. Yeah, it, it does seem really odd. Um, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know what, what – uh, I don't know if we're going to get – if there is more clarity to give on that or what, what the reasoning is behind that, but um, uh, it, it's, it's weird. Um, you know, I, I wasn't expecting this at all. Uh, I, I thought there was going to be a lot more here. And the, I mean, because you look at all the all the teams that were, you know, potentially affected by it, by what was going on there. Um, you would think you would think, uh, you know, there's going to be a little bit more severity here. Some some more major, uh, you know, punishments handed down. And it seems, you know, from what everybody else is saying, more of a slap on the wrist than anything. Yeah, I mean, I before you came on, I brought up at least the NFL had the guts to. To, to suspend Tom Brady, who is arguably the greatest football player of all time. We know the popularity of Tom Brady. And at least they suspended him. At least they, they fined Bill Belichick a huge amount of money. I mean, it's just like you're allowing these players, two different World Series teams, 2017, 2018, you're allowing them to cheat. You're allowing them to keep their rings. You're allowing them to keep their title. You're allowing them to keep the millions of dollars that they made. And you just go, oh, we're moving on. Yeah, you know, I think um, it, it's kind of, you know, unfortunate here um, in terms of, you know, what people, like I said, what people were expecting. I think um, baseball fans, certainly of, of those other teams who were affected, I think deserve a little bit more of a, at least an explanation here to, to what was kind of the, you know, the, the reasoning behind this. Like, like I said, everyone thought it was going to be a lot more so. Um, it, it, it's, it's a weird situation. You know, it just came out and, and a lot of people are still, I think, kind of trying to process it, but for sure the early, early, uh, feedback is not, not, not very good here. No, it's just uh, baseball makes decisions that are just, it's head scratching. But, uh, one thing that was really cool that, you know, got to see you following you on Twitter and, and watching was, you know, the, the, the time honored tradition of veteran guys taking care of rookies and, to have Marcus Simeon taking Jesus Lazardo suit shopping, it was great to see. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, um, and especially you know in that in that A's clubhouse. I mean, you hear about other teams and you know Ricky Hazing and all that, and, and maybe it's not as prevalent as it is in other clubhouses. But I know it, it does exist in other clubhouses. But you know, with the A's, uh, I, I can tell you, I've never seen anything like that going on. It's always the opposite. You know the. Uh, and then Marcus talks about it in that video, actually, about welcoming in rookies right away and making them feel comfortable. And I think that does lead to their success early on. And, uh, you know, Marcus is that guy now. Um, before it was Jed Lowry and, and, you know, other guy, other veteran guys. Now they're gone. Marcus is that veteran guy, which is kind of funny because he's not that old. But, you know, he's, he's old enough on that on that A's team of young guys to, to be a vet. And he certainly does a good job of taking in guys like Luzardo and then whoever comes up to the majors. Um, and helping them just settle in right away. And pretty much everyone in the A's clubhouse makes them feel welcome right away. And, um, and that's always cool to see. And, and that was a cool video right there with him and Lazardo just kind of 
giving us a glimpse at, at uh, you know, their life outside of baseball a little bit because, you know, those two guys are, you know, pretty quiet guys. They're pretty uh, keep to themselves. They're pretty uh, focused on the task at hand, and it was cool to see kind of another side from them. Yeah, I mean, uh, the bottom line with Marcus Simeon is there. there's different, ki- di- different type of leaders, and he is the quiet leader, and we don't necessarily see it, but like that video shows where Marcus is the leader of this team, and there just is something about leading by example. When you go out and play every single day, when you go out and bust your behind every single day and you get over the struggles that you had and you put up a year like he had last year, there's just something really, really special about Marcus Simeon that I bet most of people in most of people in baseball, they don't know. But since we're around it every day, I think we do know the character, the person, the father, the husband the player, the teammate, truly one of the most special guys. I think, I think we both could say that we've ever covered. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, it's, it's perfect that he's from the Bay area too. And he just fits right in with this, you know, culture of, you know, you know, kind of always being the underdog type guy, overlooked type guy. Um, you know, Marcus maybe wasn't, you know, I mean, he was, he was a high draft pick, but um, you know, in terms of, you know, projected to be a star, I mean, who would have thought he was going to be, you know, top three in the MVP voting, you know, at one point in his career. Uh, especially early on with the A's when he was, like you mentioned, when he was struggling with defense and all that. And, um, you know, I, I mean, you just look at the guy's work ethic every day. I mean, he doesn't take a day off, literally played every game last year. And, um, you know, his pregame routine, um, you know, what he does after the game to recover. Um, I know guys like Chapman and Olsen and, and and all those other guys are have, you know, taken note of that from the first day they stepped into this clubhouse and tried to emulate them because, you know, they, they know that, that that's going to help them have a, a success, long and successful career. Um, and, uh, you know, Marcus certainly um, has set that, you know, example for everybody in that clubhouse to follow. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's been cool to see his development um, along with the rest of the team. And, you know, as, as Marcus Simeon has gotten better, the A's have gotten better. And they've, they've you know, obviously won 97 games back-to-back years. And Marcus has, you know, been a key part of both those years in that leadoff spot. I mean, he's he turned into, he was one of the best leadoff hitters in the game last year, if not the best leadoff hitter in the game, which, um, like three years ago, I mean, who would have thought that, you know? So it's just a testament to the way, he, you know, he works hard. And, and, you know, he's a great guy to interview, too. I mean, he's always there at his locker, win or lose, to talk to you. Um, he's always, you know, an insightful guy with, with you know, stuff to say. Um, and, uh, you know, he's certainly, like you said, unlike anyone else that, that I've covered in terms of, you know, the whole package, I mean, it, it's hard to come across another ball player like that. You know, what we're learning watching uh, these games on NBC California whether it's 72, 73, we're now going to pivot to 1974. You know, nowadays we talk about launch angle and home runs, but really it's pitching and defense wins championships. And that's what the 70s teams did. And that's really now what the A's do. I I think their biggest strength, and it's not sexy, it should be sexy, but it's not sexy. The A's biggest strength the last two years, wouldn't you agree, is their defense. Absolutely. I mean, look at that infield. It's full of gold glove, gold glove, you know, caliber infielders all around. You know, Loriano in center. Um, you know, one of the best arm, the best arm in the game, I think. And and a, you know, some people will, might criticize his route running a little bit, but he's still a very. I mean, look at the catches he's made. Um, he makes up for it with his athleticism. So he's a great outfielder. And you know, Robbie Grossman was a Gold Glove uh, candidate. I mean, 
they're they're sure-handed all around. You know, Sean Murphy is is a extremely good defensive catcher. Um, you know, and and we're going to see a full season of him as well. So, I mean, I, I, you're not wrong at all in saying that their defense is their strength, and you know, their pitching is going to be a, a stronghold as well. There's really no weaknesses, I think, on this A's team, which which is why I think everybody's excited to see you know this team in action. Hopefully, we get to see them at some point this season, um, this year, um, because. Well, obviously the high expectations going into spring training and I mean the way they were looking in there uh spring training camp it was no nothing to kind of deter you from those expectations um but yeah back back to your point about defense for sure I think they're one of the best defensive teams in baseball for sure yeah and it's a lot of fun to watch uh, the infield defense for the A's spectacular and Rob Manfred the commissioner has come out and said he believes we are going to have some type of season and how crazy is it going to be? Because we have always lived by it's a marathon, not a sprint. We're now going to have a sprint. Yeah, that's it's uh, going to be interesting to see how that plays out. I mean, you look at you look at the A's and and just their history. I mean, it, it certainly wouldn't necessarily favor them because they're used to getting off to kind of slow starts and then second season kind of heating up. So I mean, they would have to find a way to kind of avoid that this year. But um, you know, all the talent is there. But I mean it. If we if we do get that type of you know short season I don't know a tournament style whatever it is it's certainly going to be something unique and I think you know in a way it'd be kind of cool I mean we all just want to see baseball come back in some capacity um, whatever the format may be as long as there's you know guys out there you know playing ball um, I think we're all going to be happy about it and um, I would certainly make for for a season that none of us will certainly forget um, you know with less games if they do do a tournament that'd be pretty cool I think. You know, I don't know about, you know, you know, the Cactus League versus Grapefruit League is something they talked about. You know, everything I think is still kind of up in the air. Um, but it's probably, you know, games in California seem unlikely, but, um, you know, to see anything, anything out there will, will, will be awesome. And, um, you know, I mean, the A's have, like we said, high expectations. So, I mean, we want to see this team on the field at some point and see what, what they can do with a full, well, maybe not a full season, but a full season in terms of this year um, with, with those, with all those talented young guys that are set to, you know, make an impact as long, along with their, current stars yeah and a big question that we had in spring training and with aj puck being shut down uh he was shut down right before i left i i mean you're not gonna really be talking about innings limits anymore for a shortened season i mean it's gonna be all hands on deck when you start talking about aj puck and, and Jesus Lazardo, and won't that be good for us that we don't have to talk about that or even question them going, hey, how many innings are you going to be able to throw? We're going to be able just to watch these guys and these great young talents just go out and uh, let it rip. Yeah, for sure. That, that that certainly would be one positive to it, uh, you know, with the shortened, shortened innings uh, of play overall. You know, they'll, they'll get to, you know, you would imagine a, a full workload for that, that type of season. And, um, you know, that was really the only big question mark heading into – this season was, um, you know, we, I think we all kind of knew there would be some type of innings limit on Luzardo and Puck. We just didn't know what that specific number was yet. Um, but this was certain, this would certainly, uh, help eliminate that. And it would, it would like I said, it would only be good for the A's because they can not have to worry about, you know, do we have to call up a guy, you know, for a spot, spot start here and there? Do we have to, you know, maybe take this month to, uh, you know, limit their workload, uh, you know, go, five innings and, and immediately take them out, you know, now, you know, if they're going well, you know, you know, they, they won't have any reason not to, you know, let them, let them, uh, you know, go a little bit deeper than, than they might, you know, later on in the season. 
So watching these old games, whether it's been 72-73 with the A's or any other games that we've seen on MLB Network, what, what, what's been your biggest takeaway of old-school baseball versus modern-day baseball? Um, I, I mean, it was just a different game. I mean, you look at, you know, pitchers. I mean, I think the, the one thing that stands out for me is, is the pitching. I mean, you look at guys nowadays. I mean, pretty much you can find anyone off the street throwing 98, 99, you know, throwing, you know, high velocity fastballs. And back then, you know, those guys were kind of rare. I mean, you, you had your, you know, guys like Nolan Ryan and stuff like that, uh, you know, but um, for the most part, it was, these guys were kind of getting it done with a little bit different, different approach. And it's, it's fun to kind of think about um, how, how, you know, guys from back then would adjust to, to times like today. You know, a lot of people say maybe, you know, they might get shelled or, because they're throwing at a lower velocity, but I'm sure, you know, with modern technology, they find a way to kind of, you know, uh, uh, tweak their games a little bit to adjust to, to today's game. But um, I think that's, that's, that's the main thing is the, the pitching. Um, and obviously I think, you know, with there not being free agency and stuff back then, the teams seemed like they were a little bit more, uh, you know, kept tight, you know, a little bit more of a, a, a brotherhood, not, not that, not that the A's of today or any team like today doesn't have that. Um, but with teams or with players coming and going every year, you know, in some form every year, that that's kind of lost. And back then you had kind of that close knit mentality. And, and there was, I think there was a little bit more rivalries with other teams. You know, there was a little bit more bad blood because guys spent so much time on teams. Um, so it, it's cool seeing, uh, t- trying to compare, you know, you know, those times back then to, to modern days today, but you know, the game's advanced. And I think, you know, there's, there's some things that people are always going to want to, you know, see, you know, oh, I, I wish, you know, back in the day, you know, they did this. I wish they did more of this. But, um, you know, I think the game, for, for the most part, is still in a, in a – it's advancing in the right direction for the most part. Yeah, the athleticism and the size have uh, definitely changed in modern-day baseball. Let's end on this. Other than sports, what have you been doing? Deep dive into maybe a show, a book. What have you been doing to pass the time? Uh, you know, pr- probably the same thing everyone else is doing. A lot of Netflix. Uh, I'm not a huge show, and I'm not a huge current series guy. Um, you know, like I'm probably one of the last people not to watch Tiger King yet. I just saw my list. I probably will at some point. Um, but basically, a lot of uh, documentaries uh, on Netflix. I've been watching a lot of Seinfeld reruns. The whole collection is on Hulu, so I've been doing that. And uh, you know, I've been doing some PS4 when I can. Uh, a bunch of MLB.com writers started a. Uh, MLB the show, which is kind of sports later, I guess, but um, we started an online league and I'm one of two guys still undefeated in that. So I take a lot of pride in that. Um, just trying to kill time, you know, um, whatever I can to, uh, you know, kind of forget about all this craziness for, for at least a moment and, uh, you know, just staying sharp with the writing, you know, still, still doing stuff for MLB.com here every week, which has been kind of cool too, because I can, you know, go back and, and look at some of those old teams of the past, the Philadelphia A's, the Kansas City A's, and, Kind of you, you appreciate the the baseball history a little more than you know. Whereas if the season was going on right now, you know you don't really get a chance to go back and look at those guys and, and kind of see what they did. Okay, wait a minute. So you're in a league with other MLB writers. <laughs> yeah. What team are you playing? Oh, we all well, we all we're all using our teams. So I'm using the Oakland A's <laughs> and still, still undefeated. Still undefeated. That is awesome. So who you start? Who, so I, I don't have the game. So do you, yeah. do you throw the same pitcher every game? Who you, who, who you well, throwing out there? 
well before before the games were were you know not as realistic so you can you can throw out your your number one guy every time but now um you know it, it's got like stamina meters on each guy and if you throw one guy a certain day you got to wait a few days or else their stamina is low so i've been going you know through the rotation i went uh you know i've used Manaya, i've used lizardo I've, I've used the uh, montas uh, Bassett and uh, Fires, I think once each. So, so you you gotta you gotta treat it like a like a like a normal game. You're you're like a real manager in that thing. Now there's no more like you know just use use your your guy who can throw 100 miles per hour with unlimited uh, stamina out there every time. You gotta you gotta strategize a little bit more. So it's it's fun man. It's fun to uh, to compete with the other guys. Certainly the bragging rights are there, and you know we're we're gonna have a little little tournament here. I think 10 games, and and uh, if if I if I come out on top. You will definitely see about it all over social media. That's for sure. Oh, we want to cover that. If you're in the World Series, <laughs> we want to. We, 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 hey, the fate of the season is in your hands, my friend. <laughs> I, I, I'll do my best. I, I will do my best for sure. All right. You take care. Be safe. We'll talk soon. All right. Thanks, Tony. Take care. How about that? What do you think about that, Cody? I was going to say, Diego's. Martin and I are actually friends on PS4 together. Um, so we're both playing the show. We don't play. We haven't played each other yet. We haven't got a time. We haven't got around to doing that. But we're friends on PS4, on and uh, we'll eventually get around to playing. But I do see when he's on and he's playing and he's playing in that league because it just says he's online in an online game. And like they're even doing the league now with you know the thirty different teams and they're represented by a player. Like I think uh, the A's player is Jesus Lazardo. And I've been seeing a lot of it because, like, Blake Snell's big on it, uh, Cole Tucker from the Pirates. Like, you see all these videos going around, the guys playing. And it's actually really cool to see guys involved in video games from a guy that plays video games. I, I actually enjoy watching it. We heard from Ramon Laureano last week that he plays a show and he saw his ranking and he feels like he needs to get better. After seeing the ranking, it, it, that was one of the best things that happened during spring training was when the game came out and the ratings were revealed, they were asking players on the Reds how they feel and everyone was so upset about their ranking and where they were at, and they also how they get so much better. So I like that the players are, you know, integrating themselves into playing video games and kind of like letting it be streamed, showing that the uh, – giving them a glimpse into their own personal life and what they do so fans kind of can see that and watch everything that's going on involved with that. Yeah, that's kind of funny I, that the beat writers are playing their own teams. Now, some of these guys, uh, you don't want to play your own team. <laughs> You're telling me you don't want to play as the Orioles? Yeah, I can't imagine that the uh, the old uh, the old uh, Tigers beat writer is going to be happy about playing that. That's got to be pretty rough. Yes, well, those two teams. If I'm just going off the top of my head, those two teams, maybe the Marlins, the Pirates for sure, the the Mariners. Those are the teams you don't want to. Although the uh, if you want to save it or not, till later. But the Mariners, for it. they're sneaking up. They're coming. Uh, uh, you know, I've been following this baseball reference season that they've been playing through you, Cody. And, uh, <laughs> it looks like our green and gold is, will will not fully go into it, but it looks like we've hit a little bump in the road. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a little slump here is what they call in the, uh, the Mariners are lurking as I'll say they're lurking. They're coming for the ace like they did last year until we hit about 20 games. How's that possible? The Mariners stink. That hey. roster is And by the way, last night, when they announced the starting lineup for the New York Mets, that's where I wanted to do the who. 
Yeah. There was some – I mean, you got Willie Mays, great, and, you know – Willie Mays is 42 years old, yeah. and he's hitting third? Yeah, and we got – well, you know, Rusty Staub was hurt, so we'll, we'll give him a pass on that. But you got but the only guy in the lineup I've ever really heard of was Bud Harrelson. I'm like, I'm like uh, this is why this team – they were 82 and 79. They had the lowest winning percentage ever in the history of baseball to make it to the World Series. And they got there because they had Tom Seaver, and and the, their pitching staff was great, what they had. And Tug McGraw coming out of the bullpen, he I'm sure you know you weren't taking him out after two inning or after uh, two thirds of an inning. So literally, that lineup was awful. They I, 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 how did the big red machine lose to those guys? They must. Have I mean, that's, that's had to be shocking. the pitching. Had to be the pitching for the Reds. How do you give up runs to that lineup? They were terrible. Willie Mays, forty-two years old, still being a hero. Yeah, when you got when you when your number three hitter is forty-two years old and done, and that would be his last time we see the great Willie Mays. That's shocking to me. Like I, I you know, I, I haven't really studied the nineteen seventy-three World Series. Obviously, I was only one years old when it happened. But watching it last night, I was just like, "Wow, I can't believe that! I can't believe they were in the World Series, let alone went seven with this great A's team." Yeah, again, looking at that, I mean, maybe that just shows the calming influence of the Hall of Famer Yogi Berra as the manager. <laughs> <laughs> watching Yogi run, and then how about you know, in modern day baseball, when teams get announced, the manager goes to home plate. Back then the manager went out to first base, both Yogi Berra and Dick Williams. And then the starting lineup, and then the guys who are not playing, they're the ones who are closest to home. So I thought that was interesting. I thought um, the great Hank Aaron throwing out the first pitch from behind the dugout. That was fascinating. I thought that we saw that with Hank Lefty Grove did it in 1972 World Series in Oakland. He threw it from behind uh, behind the dugout, which was pretty, pretty what's cool up to see. With that? Uh, that's must that must be how they did it back then. I don't know. I mean, yeah. Because now that I think about it, we've seen presidents back in the day throw out first pitch of opening day, and they did it from the stands. But I always just thought they did that because they were old. I didn't realize that. Once again, you weren't alive. I was just born. I didn't realize the first pitch used to come from behind the dugout, not walk the guy out. Uh, and let him throw out the first. I've thrown out the first pitch twice. You know, I got out. Of course, I got up on the mound. Um, Did you make it the home guys, plate? Huh? Did you make it the home plate? The first time I threw out the first pitch was to Adam Rosales. And I told Rosie, I said, hey, listen, I'm airing this thing out. And I, and I haven't been on a mound since, God, 1995 or whatever it was. And so I threw it high. The next time I did it, I threw a bullet right down the middle. I don't remember who was catching it. I was going to ask you who caught that one. I don't remember. But, we, uh, we've seen some bad ones throughout history. Uh, 50 Cents comes to mind. Where, yeah, and then was, the one where the girl threw, threw it off the camera guy. <laughs> that, that one. <laughs> <laughs> the mayor of Cincinnati didn't have a good one. There's been a couple bad ones. Yeah, well, I mean, you've seen a lot of people stand. They don't even get on the mound, and they throw it out. But, yeah, but see the first – what they call the first pitch, throwing it from behind the dugout. And, like, Henry Aaron, did he throw it to Fossey? 
It's a, uh, it's a good question. Because I remember, I, go, I remember. I take the game. We, we can ask Fossey coming up here, but it was like Henry Aaron had two balls, and he 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 kept throwing it down, and it kept coming back. They like kept, had like a little game of catch. We'll have to ask Fossey. Maybe he'll know. I mean, and you mentioned about how guys, you know, they had him throw behind the dugout because they're old. Uh, Henry Aaron was still playing at that time, so I think the the great Hank Aaron would have made it onto the field to throw out the pitch if they wanted them to. But uh, yeah, the great Hank Aaron. He was still two home runs behind uh, George Herman Ruth's record of uh, seven. So that was 73, his last year. Yeah, he played till 1976. He played three more seasons after what we, what we saw. His stats, by the way, you know, when we talk about greatest player of all time, if you if you took if you took the names away because we're biased based on when you watch baseball, who's your favorite team, who's your his stats, Henry Aaron's stats are mind blowing. He's got two thousand two hundred and ninety seven RBIs, the most ever. Total bases six thousand eight hundred and fifty six the most ever his 755 home runs should be the most ever and then you look at his hits i don't think a lot of people realize and i always like to bring this up only pete rose and ty cobb have more hits than henry aaron 3771 so you take all these guys they got 3000 hits all these guys that you think have all these hits, not one of them sniff Hank Aaron other than Pete Rose and Ty Cobb. Did you know that until I started bringing that up, Cody? What, about the hits? Uh, I, yeah. I I was familiar with it, but the more you brought it up, the more it became ingrained to me that he had the third most hits of all time. I knew about the RBIs and, and the home runs, obviously, and just how great of a player he was, although he couldn't have been that great because he wasn't voted in unanimously. But – the whole, the whole thing, with, he has the, the hits, and I think Pulhos is next closest in RBIs, which if Pulhos plays a couple more years, he might pass him because I think Pulhos is getting close. But, uh, yeah, people forget how great of an all-around player Henry Aaron really was. And there's a reason why in the sandlot when Babe Ruth comes into the dream of Benny the Jet and says, Henry Aaron, I'm going to – can I have this kid, this card kid? I'm, I'm going to hold on to this one. Uh, even, even the Babe knew how good Hank Aaron was going to be. And – you want to talk about the difference between Willie Mays and Hank Aaron is Willie Mays wasn't good in the postseason. You can look at the numbers and I'm not disparaging Willie Mays. He's one of the greatest players of all time, but Henry, Henry Aaron, when the time came to play in the postseason, his postseason numbers, he got, he got to play in three world series and well, no, he got to play in two world series and one NLCS his career numbers in the postseason. He hit 362 with six home runs and over 1,000 OPS in 17 postseason games. Is that any good? And drove in six in 17 postseason games, he drove in 16 runs. Is that any good? It's a nice little career there in the postseason. That, the man is incredible. Also incredible coming up next. We'll talk to our buddy Ron Washington. We haven't talked to Wash in a while. Bringing Wash back to AIDS Cast Live. That's his next.
Can't wait to talk to one of the great infield coaches of all time right here on A's Cast. This is A's Cast Live, your comprehensive look at the Oakland Athletics. Watch the left field team. Bam going back, looking up. He will watch it fly. And 29 other MLB clubs. 2-2 pitch on Trout, and he blasts one. Way back. Go for Yelich. Cody Bellinger hits one out. Pete Alonso. He's your home run derby champion. Join us as we take you inside the baseball universe. From spin rate to juiced balls to game-changing moments, we have you covered. Spend your afternoon with us next from the town, only on A's Cast Live. A's Cast Live. Here's Chris Townsend. We got a lot to get into with Ron Washington. Of course, we're going to talk about his Atlanta Braves, who last year, like the A's, won 97 games and this team is stacked and they're ready to fight in this NL East and I would have to say going in Noah Syndergaard having Tommy John and the Mets looking different with their starting staff I gotta say the Atlanta Braves have to be the favorites in the NL East And the way this team has come on, went in 90 games in 2018, 97 games in 2019, they're going to be tough to deal with. One of the favorites in the National League. And the great Ron Washington is joining us now here on A's Cast Live. Wash, how are you? I'm doing quite well. How about yourself? We're doing good, just hopefully getting ready for a season. But the number one thing that we've been doing here with A's Cast Live is we, we want to bring on familiar voices. And obviously yours inside this organization, your relationship with our fan base, it really means a lot. And just to, to hear from you, I know we're going to talk about the Atlanta Braves, but more importantly, just to check in with you, uh, it, it's great to hear your voice, and thank you for coming on. Well, thank you for having me, and it's always great to talk with you guys, uh, you know, and uh... – Hopefully, um, at some point, uh, we'll get a chance to get back on the field and uh, the fans can see some baseball. You know, we've been celebrating the World Series teams of 72, 73, and 74. We just, we just saw game one last night on NBC Sports California, uh, the game one of the 1973 World Series. Coming up on Thursday, we're going to have game one of the 1974 World Series between the A's and the Dodgers. You you were a, a teenager, just starting to become a professional at that point. What do you remember about those great A's teams? Well, uh, I, I remember how they, uh, when they took the field, they looked like they was confident. Uh, they had pitchers that could, could pitch, and they had guys that could catch the ball. They had speed. I mean, I was down the street in San Jose at the time in 1974 with the Kansas City Royals. I just made it to high A ball. And um, on an off day, we went down and got a chance to see him play. And um, that's what I noticed about them. Um, they were very confident. They pitched the ball. They caught the ball. They ran the bases. Uh, they was a quality uh, team. And I guess that's why they went uh, three years in a row um, to the World Series and won it. I forgot about that. You played at San Jose Muni. That's right. In 1974. And I got the chance to see my first big league game in 1974. 
Well, Wash, I played at San Jose State, so that was our home field also, San Jose. <laughs> it's pretty it, – because I remember, like, it, when, when, when I first got to San Jose State in 1991, you know, they had the – you know, whether it was the San Jose Bees and they had all the legendary – San Jose Bees. Yeah, George yeah. Brett played in San Jose also. So, yeah, that's great. You played in San Jose. That's awesome. Yes. Matter of fact, in 1974 as a team, we uh, – Led all the baseball and stole the bases. I think as a team, we stole something like 350 something in one year. You know, unfortunately, during your career, and it was just an era of of work stoppage. Unfortunately, labor strife happened all the time in baseball. Just take us through what it's like when you go through an issue where you can't play games. Obviously, this pandemic is different, but you've played in shortened seasons. What is that like? Well, it's uh, it's strange, number one, but, uh, you know, it's satisfying because uh, you certainly missed a, a good part of uh, the game of baseball, and you're just so thrilled to get back. So um, it's boring sitting around. Um, I've never been home at this time of the year, uh, so it's quite boring. Uh, but, you know, you try to keep in touch with the guys and, uh, you know, see how they're doing. But there really, really isn't much you can do. And at this moment, it's different because uh, you don't know if we'll play or not. So, you know, and the whole thing is uh, how the health organization will allow or won't allow out there. And it's not our call anymore. Now we just got to wait and see. In the past, it was our call, you know, either on the, on the owner's side or on the player's side. It was our call. Right now, it's not our call. Yeah, and, and when when you have a shortened season, you know, we traditionally say, you know, hey, it's it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. In a shortened season, it becomes a sprint. How important is it for you to get out to a hot start? Well, in, in that scenario, it's very important that you get out to a hot start, which is what you want to do in any scenario. It's not just that scenario, in any scenario. So, um, you know, it gives what it does do. It gives a, an organization that may have thought they had a chance a great chance because who's playing baseball the best at the time for the short period of time is the teams that'll be up in there. And you know, sometimes uh, the best team don't start getting things together until you get about two months, a month and a half into the season. You know, and if uh, if you play a short season and uh, one of the other teams in your division that wasn't supposed to be there mess around and get hot early, which you've seen, I want to call them bad teams, but you've seen teams that's not supposed to be in the playoffs get hot early, but then people say, well, that won't last. And, and for sure, it don't last. So um, it gives an opportunity to an organization that, uh, you know, all they could do is, was hope for a couple years down the road. You know, I think about your guys' organization right now, and there's special times going on with the Atlanta Braves. You won 97 games last year, and, and you just look at all the talent that's in your lineup. Young talent, talent in their prime. What is it like for the Atlanta Braves being around them, knowing that, you know what, you guys, when this thing does get started, you will be the favorites in the NL East? Well, I, I think the, the, the one thing that uh, gives us the most hope 
is our young kids are gamers. Uh, they come to the ballpark every day and prepare for one thing, to be the best that they can be. Uh, they're not just coming there to go through the motion. They come in there to whip somebody's butt every single day. And you actually don't find that in youth. And that's a credit to the organization because, uh, you know, it, 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 it's not hard for us as the leaders and the coaches uh, to get them to understand what it takes daily to go out there and play. They want that information. And they try to take that information and carry it out there. And that's the beauty of uh, the Atlanta Braves right now with all that youth that they have. Uh, they know opportunity is there. They know they're, they're pretty good. And not only are they pretty good, but they come every day and they work at maintaining being pretty good. And finding that in youth is hard. So it's a, it's a very special situation right now with the Atlanta Braves. Well, one thing that I take away from your club – in 2019 is you guys were 47 and 34 on the road that tied with the Dodgers for the best record in the national league to win on the road like that wash is something special. Well, it is. And, and you got to have some, some, some good pitching. You got to have some tremendous defense. Uh, you got to have uh, great baseline and you got to have some luck. And, um, you know, we've, we've, we were fortunate enough to have all of that. Our pitchers didn't matter to them where they were. They pitched the ball and they gave us a chance. Our guys didn't matter where they were. Uh, they created havoc, um, whether they was in the batter's box or whether they was on the base pads. And they certainly made teams earn um, on the defensive side whatever they got. And when you can do that, um, especially on the road, um, you're going to have the success that you just described. You know, I, I, I know how Billy Bean feels about you, and a lot of people in this game feel you're one of the best defensive coaches to who have ever been in Major League Baseball. And watching these A's teams from the 70s under Dick Williams, it was all about fundamentals. You know, you think about baseball today, everybody's talking about velocity and launch angle and home runs, but watch – even in today's baseball, still, it's about defense. Defense wins. Defense wins championships. And you understand that as much as anybody. Well, you know, you have to be able to catch the ball. You know, they got this old saying that it's 27 outs and you can't be giving up 29 or 30 of them and expect to be, and expect to be successful. So, um, you know, if you can just give up the 27 outs each and every day. And the main thing is this. When a ball is put in play and it's, it's supposed to be an out. You just want the out. Now, it don't take a whole lot of, 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 of being the greatest in the world to do that. But if, it's, if your mindset is that, then that's where you go. And, um, you know, that's the one thing that I've always been fortunate enough. Even when I was in Oakland, I was fortunate enough to have players that cared about more than one part of the game of baseball. Yes, they may have the ability to swing the bat, but more than anything else, they also – knew and, and worked at the ability to, when a ball is hit in my area, to make the play. So it was a pride thing for the 25 guys that we had on the club. And, uh, and that's exactly what it takes. And, you know, you got your launch angles, like you say, home runs are beautiful. But when you get a pitcher on that mound that has his stuff that night, it might be one or two runs that wins that game. And that means there can't be no mess ups on the defensive side. So, Defense, you bring every day. Offense, it just comes if you got a pitcher out there that you can figure out. No offense will happen if there's a pitcher out there that got his stuff and doing what he want to do. But 
if it got to take one run to win a ball game, I would like to be on the side that get that one run. So that means we played defense. You know, Acuna Jr., the talent is off the charts. You get to watch him on an everyday basis. If you could compare him to anybody from the past, who would you compare Acuna Jr. to? Wow. He is special. And um, if I could compare him to one person that I was around uh, for, for five years and watched him uh, develop and become a superstar, it would have to be Kirby Puckett. Um, because Kirby hit with power. He ran the bases. He hit for average. Uh, he always came through in big situations. Um, and that's Ronald Kuna, but that's a growing Ronald Acuna in a, in a quicker time than a Kirby Puckett. A Kirby Puckett guy that started doing it in about four years. Ronald Acuna started doing it as soon as he hit the big leagues. He's special. But, you know, until you start to get in five, six years and you have been consistent, it's, uh, it's hard to just say this guy is going to do this and this guy is going to do that. But he has the ability to do whatever it is that he wants to do. It's going to always be up to Ronald Acuna and how much he wanted and how bad he wanted to perform and how good he wanted to be. And He's you, good. Oh, yeah. And you, and you have one of the best all-around players. When you think offensively and defensively, Freddie Freeman. I mean, we, we like to talk about Matt Olson with us, who's great defensively, has won two gold gloves. But talk to us about how good Freddie Freeman is. Well, Freddie is not a rah-rah guy. Freddie shows up every day and, and prepares and go about his business. And um, But if he recognized that you are not pulling your weight, he has a way of just pulling those young kids on the side and relate to them. And that's leadership in the game today. In the game, when I was out there, you was called out. But not today. But uh, that's what Freddie. Freddie comes every day. Freddie wants to play every day. Freddie wants to be in a situation where uh, he can help his team be successful every day. And along with that attitude that Freddie brings, it just infiltrates everybody on the team. And I think that's why we young kids can come and relax because they have a leader that shows up every day and leads the way. And he does it every day, leads the way. And you know what? Your old disciple is the same way in Marcus Simeon. What Marcus Simeon has turned into as a man, as a person, we know what a great husband, father he is, but all the work. And, 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 and you know, with this A's team, with a lot of young players, Marcus, the fact that how hard he works and he plays 162 games. I mean, how, how could you be a young player and not work hard when Marcus is out there busting it every single day? Just how proud of you. Uh, to watch Marcus Simeon continue to grow and be one of the best players in baseball? Um, I'm as proud as, uh, as, as anyone can be as if he was my son. And, and I do believe that the A's organization has to be proud, too, of what Billy Bean did. Uh, when, 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 when I did have an opportunity to come to Oakland and work with him, it was because Billy Bean and Dave Foss and Bob Melvin and that organization saw something in Marcus because any other place where Marcus would have been at the time when he was in Oakland, they would have said, he can't do this. Get him out of here. He can't do that. He can't do that. But they didn't do that. They stayed patient. And he already had leadership skills. You can look at it. He's just a tr tremendous young man. 
So he had leadership skills. Um, it was no doubt he had something in that back. And then the rest of his game just had to come together. And, you know, I just happened to be one of the tools that was able to guide him to understand how good he can be. And, but that only happened if the kids you're trying to guide put in the time and work. And you said earlier, Marcus Simeon works and he's legit. Um, he's a leader. He's a winner. Uh, he's a great person. He's a nice father. He's a husband. Uh, he's everything you would like to see in a person. And uh, he's very humble. And um, I was very proud to be able to work with him. And I certainly thank the AIDS organization for giving me that opportunity. Wash, it's always great hearing your voice. Thank you for taking the time today. Be safe, and I can't wait to talk to you again once this season gets started. Be well. I will, and you, you do the same. Thank you so much for having me. The great Ron Washington here on A's Cast Live. How good was that, Cody? Uh, I'm a big Wash guy. I, 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 anytime we can have Wash on to talk about anything, including the Braves, it's great. Um, just him talking about Kirby Puckett, uh, that, that surprised me a little bit, comparing Acuna Jr. to Kirby Puckett. But Wash has been around a long time, and he knows his players, and if he's comparing him to Hall of Famer Kirby Puckett, uh, let's hope uh, Acuna can live up to that uh, that um, comparison. Kirby Puckett was Kirby Puckett was great, and Kirby Puckett played big in big games. I mean, you can go back to the World Series. I mean, let's look it up. I mean, we forget how good Kirby Puckett was. Um, and for a lot of you younger kids out there listening, you may. Never saw him play, but Kirby Puckett was a legit. He was a six-time gold glove winner, won a batting title. He was an MVP. Oh, wait a minute. He never won an MVP. He was an all-star MVP, ALCS MVP, two-time World Series champion, batting title, a career. Of course, he got hit in the eye, and it, and it cost him his career. Uh, he was a career 318 hitter. 12 years. And only got to play 12 years. He would have played a lot longer. But he still drove in over 1,000. OPS of 837 for his career. He was a terrific player. But I want to see what he... Postseason-wise, he he was... Uh, I want to believe... Yeah, in the postseason, for his career, he hit 309 and 897 OPS. Five, five jacks, 16 RBIs. Kirby Puckett hit, man, and he could play defense. He's truly one of the great players. So that was an interesting comparison. I think Acuna Jr. has more power. But, I mean, if you get compared to any Hall of Famer, that's a pretty good comparison. Uh, agreed. And he almost went 40-40 last year in his second full – actually his first full season, second season in the major leagues. The crazy thing about the Braves, though, is they won their second straight NL East title last year. They've won, they've won 90 or more games nine out of the last 18 seasons. All nine years that they've won 90 or more, they haven't won a playoff series. So they need to, you know, buck that trend eventually if they want to prove, you know, get another title. Well, they only had the one in 95 with, with the Smoltz, Glavin, and, and Maddox and Chipper. But they got the talent with Freeman and Ozzy Albies and Dansby Swanson and Acuna. And, you know, now they got Marcelo Zuna. Your guy, Austin Riley, who you really like, you're very high on. They got uh, Travis Darno, who they signed. Cole Hamels is there now. 
Max Fareed, Mike Soroka, who was one of the finalists for the MV, for the rookie of the year, they have a lot of talent in their bar, and their farm system is very talented. It's just a matter of can they win a playoff series, and that's been escaping them for a long time. Yeah, the Atlanta Braves. You think about the success of the Atlanta Braves for all these years. I mean, what would they win their division? 14 straight times? Yep, that thing. You know, nothing to scoff at. <laughs> and they won one World Series? Yep, one. And John Smoltz even said it was a disappointment, the Hall of Famer, on this program. That they, they felt they should have won a lot more. I mean, they had great success. And they're back to having that success again. I mean, the Atlanta Braves, you think of the amount of times they've been in the playoffs and won their division over the last 30 years. It's really, really impressive. I mean, uh, it's been a heck of a run with a lot of different players and Hall of Fame players and good players. And they've got this team. You look at their rotation. Now, Cole Hamels got hurt in spring train. What was his injury? Yeah, I remember him getting hurt. Let me look it up. I, I, I don't I want to say shoulder, but that could be wrong. Um, I'm searching for it. I mean, so certain guys, this layoff will be will be good for them. Yeah, it was a shoulder injury that he had. Yeah, but you look at their rotation. I mean, if I if anything, I don't love their. I mean, if you're calling Mark Melanson and Will Smith your closer, I'm not loving that. Well, Will Smith's actually gonna be like their setup guy. Apparently, Melanson's yeah, gonna be the but, closer. But I mean, their 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 lineup is absolutely stacked. And oh wow, <laughs> he, he's he's even early today. We got uh, probably the biggest treat I've had during this layoff. <laughs> well, first let's play is open. Play is open, coach. Wednesday is known as Hump Day for everyone during the work week, but on A's Cast Live, Wednesday means one thing. It's time for 30 uninterrupted minutes with the two-time World Series champion, two-time All-Star, two-time Rawlings Gold Glove winner, A's analyst on NBC California, the franchise, Ray Fossey. Let, let me get this in first. Chevron and its brands are committed to reliably providing fuel to customers even during an emergency. The safety and health of workers, customers, and the communities where Chevron operates are primary concerns in Northern California. Chevron and Texaco stations are open for business, supplying quality fuels in a safe manner. I got to tell you, the biggest treat I got yesterday watching game one of the 1973 World Series was watching my guy, the face of the franchise, <laughs> Ray Fossey, get announced and come out and then play catcher and looking at the guns that you had when you stepped up to the plate, Ray. I was very, it was a lot of fun watching you play yesterday. Thank you, Tony. Listen, I'm early because the technology, you know, I'm not there yet, but Cody is really helping me. So Cody, you, you know, Cody, sometimes you put on t-shirts and I know that uh, there's certain significance to a t-shirt. What's the one today that you have on? Today is the Amazing A's one from 2002. Uh, I was just going through my closet. It was either this or the strikeout bullying T-shirt that I got from Liam, and I went with the Amazing A shirt for today. 2002, 20 consecutive wins, right? Yep, that's why it's on. The, you got the big heads of like Zito and Mulder and Hudson on here, and you know the other players. Right. But 
I mainly I was a big Barry Zito guy growing up, so getting this T-shirt was like an honor. I thought uh, I thought you grew up idolizing Mr. Townsend. Tony wasn't around then, but now he is. <laughs> hey, Tony, Tony, you, you know what? I'm glad you brought up the uh, the 2000 or the 1973. I'll be honest with you. When I caught that game, the first hitter came up, and I said, "This is the World Series," because the five games or the five game league championship series then. You had, or we had to beat the Orioles just to get into the World Series. So the pressure was to get in by beating the Orioles. So by the time the World Series came, even though it was my first, I'll be honest with you, it was kind of anticlimactic. But then, of course, everything started to fall into place and realize where I was. And the crowds were, you know, big because the upper deck was open. It's the old configuration. A lot of people there. But uh, it was a lot of fun and extremely, extremely happy to uh, get one of uh, the first of my two World Championship rings. Well, Two guys that I really want to get into with you. Uh, first, Ken Holtzman. I've now watched him pitch two games. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I interviewed Ken, he's not as tall as he used to be when we <laughs> had one of those celebrations. And you look out there at a very tall, athletic, very yeah. fluid, loosey-goosey left-hander. And you've always mentioned to me about – he filled up the strike zone with his fastball and he'd even throw like a BP fastball as a changeup. And, but when he drops that hook on you, that hammer, since he's throwing so many fastballs, you're not ready for it. I just, I'm so impressed watching him pitch and just how good Kenny Holtzman was. You know, I think it probably was the most underrated on that staff because of course, catfish hunter and Vita blue. And then I think, you know, you think about Kenny Holtzman and Blue Moon Odom and then Raleigh Fingers coming out of the bullpen and the the other guys leading up to Raleigh if you needed them. But Kenny Holtzman to me, and I, I, would, I do want to say that tomorrow night, fans are going to get the chance to see game, uh, it's game one of the World yeah. Series 1974. It's going to be on AceCast, which Ken Korak and I are going to be talking during the game at times. And then it's going to be also on NBC Sports so people can watch that game in its entirety. I bring that up because they're going to watch Kenny Holtzman pitch extremely well in that first game, be taken out on the fifth inning and Raleigh Fingers comes in. But I don't know if the game four is going to be shown. I think that's the game in which Kenny pitches and he strikes out Steve Garvey, to your point, on a 3-2 curveball in the first inning. He struck out Jimmy Wynn, and then, you know, he, he threw pretty much all fastballs. And in 1974, when I caught him, he pitched against the Orioles. And I've said this many times, and I'll repeat it because it's un- unbelievable, that he threw about 110 pitches, only one curveball. It was the batting practice fastball that you mentioned, plus the fastball. So he had all these hitters kind of going back and forth, rocking back and forth, not knowing is a true fastball or BP fastball. Kenny Holtzman, to me, one of the best pitchers I'd ever caught, and I was fortunate to catch a lot of good ones. I mean, we look at his numbers, and we went over his numbers earlier. I don't think we celebrate him enough as the Oakland A's. I think the Oakland A's need to really look back to to see how many big games and how many great seasons he had with the A's because he's truly one of the best pitchers in this organization's history. And he could hit, too, Tony. How about his hitting? I mean, he was unbelievable. He had, he had the home runs. He had doubles. Matter of fact, he scored on a on a Campy Campanera squeeze bunt uh, with two strikes on him. And, and you know, just just a phenomenal player. But I, I think because uh, I remember asking Catfish Hunter um, again, maybe repeating myself, but Catfish um, in 1992 it was the 25th anniversary of the A's in Oakland. And I said, 
Cat, great pitcher that you were. How many pitches does a pitcher need to be successful? And he said, one. Look at Kenny Holtzman. He brought up Holtzman. He knew that Kenny threw the fastball. He'd throw variations of the fastball, BP fastball, if you will. But he knew that because Kenny had great control, even though he had one of the best 12 to 6 curveballs in the game, but he was a control pitcher. I, I still love his philosophy. I want to be out of here an hour and a half, win or lose, get it over with. Let's go. I'm done. But that's, that's kind of how quickly he pitched, which was great because he was good. He could throw that BP fastball. And as fans get a chance to see these World Series games when he does pitch, he gets into trouble. But all of a sudden, he throws that BP fastball, gets the hitter to roll over. It's a 6 4 3 double play. And all of a sudden, he's out of the inning. He's a very good pitcher. He was a very good pitcher. And, and I agree with you. I, I think very underrated in so many ways, but he was just an exceptional pitcher with those staffs. And, and, and really give Charlie Finley a lot of credit for trading for him, bringing him over from the Chicago Cubs and adding him to an already very good staff. And then all of a sudden, you had the 320 game winners in 1973. I don't know if it was your second or third at bat when you grounded out to Bud Harrelson. Ray Fossey was moving down the line, big fella. You, you yeah, had that's some wheels a, back in the day. And that's called adrenaline. Adrenaline. <laughs> uh, you know, one what, what of my... When uh, the great late Harmon Killebrew was playing third base for the Minnesota Twins, and I hit a routine ground ball to him. And he's soon catcher, you know, no speed. I beat it out for an infield hit. And I'll never forget him coming up. And when he came up to hit, he said, you're a catcher. You're not supposed to be able to run. So I, I fooled him, but I said, just let me catch a few games and these thighs will get big and I won't be able to run. But, you know, when, when you're playing the World Series, if you don't have the adrenaline, and Tally, remember, I had uh, I had participated in the five league championship games uh, plus 143 regular season. So you, you'd think that you're tired. You don't, you don't get tired in the World Series. And that's what bothers me, as I've said many times. If you get the chance to play on the big stage, only two teams remaining, and now with 30 teams, you're one of two, how can you not enjoy and be pumped up to the point that you're going to bust it down the line? So, yeah, I mean, maybe I was, but maybe maybe the arms were flapping, made it look like I was running fast. But, but the bottom line, I was giving it all I had. Sometimes it wasn't as good as it should have been, but uh, I, I didn't lack for the hustle, put it that way. Well, you know, we're learning a lot of things about these 70s teams and about these series. And one is in 72, Lefty Grove throwing out the first pitch from behind the dugout. 1973, yeah. it was Hank Aaron. Still, he was at 713 home runs, about to pass the Babe the next year. And he had two baseballs, and he threw them down, and then they came back to him. He threw them again. Was that <laughs> you catching that, Hank Aaron? Uh, no, it must have been in it must have been in, in New York because I didn't. I caught. Well, I think Bob game one. It was he threw it out. Game was one. it? Yeah. Well, maybe I did. I, Rock Hudson threw one out. I remember that. And then. Um, but I, I don't remember Hank Aaron. But I, if I threw it back, I was one of his autograph. You know, but I mean, that's I, I knew what he was doing, and I, I was a collector, still am. And uh, if I did, but um, all I know could have happened, Tony. But I was so wrapped up in that, um, and and how he rose. I, I still bring this up, and I know you guys have you had him one yet? Uh, yeah, we had him on. He says you didn't tag him. Uh, <laughs> <I know. laughs> Uh, it's the funniest thing, but I mean, all these years later, but how great would it have been to be a fan of a team 
and then to broadcast for that same team. And that's what Howie Rose, and I'm sure he talked to you guys about that. But, but you know, it, it was just so much fun in that World Series. And, and game two, the great Willie Mays, I'll never forget, uh, he got a hit, and it was twilight. There's took 12 in a game, and the unfortunate thing was for Mike Andrews in the 12th inning, and that caused a whole fiasco in itself. But I'll never forget Willie coming up, and he said, man, it's hard to see. And he thought he had deked me. I mean, you know, the pitchers that I caught, most of the A's staff threw a lot of fastballs, and I tried to get out, outside as far as I could to uh, get out of the strike zone. And it happened to be a fastball, and he got a base hit. And I, I'll never forget that he mentioned, well, I really deked, I really dig Fossey. I told him I couldn't see, so he threw me a fastball, figured I couldn't see it, and got a base hit. But uh, the great Willie Mays in that World Series, and uh, uh, it, it was just for me to come back to Oakland, uh, down three games to two and have Mr. October in his first World Series because he was injured in 72 to be able to put on a show at the Coliseum in game six and seven was just phenomenal. And, you know, and again, Tony, I, I think one of the things and, and you told me that you were going to be keeping score during these games. There are a lot of people who were not born in the 70s. And now they get a chance to see it. If nothing else, this this sadness that's going on in this country and no baseball. But I think now the fans get a chance to see three pretty, you know, the, the teams that won the World Series three consecutive years. Granted, the team changed a little, but not a lot, but just enough to keep winning. And uh, I, I think had free agency not come along, I think that club could have continued to win a lot more World, champ world Championships. The more I see Raleigh Fingers, the more <laughs> I realize – and I've been making a case, Ray, that you really, if you took the names off the numbers and you just put the numbers up there, you can make a case that Raleigh Fingers is the greatest reliever of all time. And watching him in 72 and 73, so he's a three-quarters guy against right-handers. He's a slinger. He even mm -hmm. dropped down sidearm, saw that in 72. And then Monty Moore was breaking it down last night against left-handers. He comes traditional over the top. His release points all over the place. I mean, if you're a hitter, you have no idea where the ball is coming from. Well, and then you add the impeccable control on top of it. I mean, he could paint the corner. And, and again, they didn't have the, the uh, grading of the home plate umpires. And, and so, you know, there are a lot of times you're out of the strike zone. I would set up out of the strike zone and he didn't hit the catcher's mitt. The umpire would call it a strike. But he had an unbelievable control. But I think the thing that sets him apart, and to your point about the greatest closer of all time, just think if Raleigh pitched just one inning, how many saves he would have amassed throughout his career. He pitched, and I, I know when I was with Cleveland or, or ended up with Milwaukee, I would say to the guys in the dugout, if that guy over there, if we don't get the starter out of the game and have a lead, that guy in number 34 is going to come out of the bullpen. We have no chance because he's not going to just come in and pitch one inning. He's going to pitch three, four if necessary. And he did in game one of the World Series in 74, four and a third innings coming out of the bullpen. He, he followed his good friend uh, Ken Holtzman and Catfish Hunter finished it. But, but a phenomenal pitcher. And remember, too, which he probably told you was a starter, and he had too much time off in between, didn't know what to do with himself, got too nervous. So Dick Williams put him in the bullpen, said, you're going to be a reliever, going to be a closer. And all of a sudden, he becomes one of the greatest in the game. And, and I know Captain Sal Bando, and I've heard you talk about, just mentioned Captain Sal. He was the captain of the ball club. But I remember there were times that Raleigh would be in a trouble, in a jam on the mound, and Sal would come over, and I'd go out to the mound, and, and Sal would be saying, okay, Raleigh. And he'd say, 
just go back to third base. I'll take care of this. And sure enough, he would. I mean, he, he'd get out of the jam. That's how that's how confident he was. Even though he might be in a jam, he knew he could get out of it. And, you know, never forget, 74, Von Joshua pinch hitting, ground ball back to Raleigh, game five. And the uh, that was it. The, uh, the game is over. And the A's win the third consecutive World Series. You know, another guy that watching and very impressed with just his all-around game as an athlete, as a hitter, defensively, Joe Rudy was a complete player. I'm glad you brought him up because I've always believed, and I I would play with Joe in some of these, uh, uh, I call them retired players games, not equitable old-timers. You know, you don't like to tag guys with old-timers, but Joe Rudy with that close stance, he was a disciple of the late Charlie Lyle, the hitting coach. And if you look at Joe's stance, that, that exaggerated close stance, and you think of George Brett, both of those guys were followers and really led by the late Charlie Lyle as a great hitting coach. But Joe, I mean, how, how would you think about, again, going back to game five of the 74 World Series? Mike Marshall's on the mound. He doesn't throw one pitch while this delay of the game with the, uh, the smoke bomb in left field. But yet he throws the first pitch to Joe Rudy. He hits a home run. That's how good Joe was. And I still think he could get a bat, put a bat in his hand right now, and he could hit. And he was a tremendous player, probably like Kenny Holtzman on the pitching side. Joe Rudy as an outfielder, the most underrated. How about the catch he made in the in the World Series in Cincinnati in, in, in the 72 World Series? I mean, what a phenomenal catch. And he said the great late Joe DiMaggio told him how to and taught him how to play left field. Not a bad guy to teach, you know, to have you be able to say on your resume that Joe DiMaggio taught me how to play the outfield. But Joe was a great player. And uh, again, you're, you're talking about guys who played and played well on all three world championship teams. And I think that says a lot. And, and, you know, I, I noticed when, when Joe hit that home run in game five, I was watching the replay of that. There was not a lot of excitement. He crossed home plate, shook hands, went back to dugout. It, it wasn't where you're seeing all the high fives and all the bashes and all the other stuff. It was just a very calm, collected, confident, group of guys that went out and played. And I think the biggest thing, Townie and Cody, is the fact that when we took the field, we said, we're going to win this game. And three consecutive years, the A's did exactly that. You know, that's one thing I have noticed watching all these these games is that everybody has a closed stance. And that's not taught anymore. No. What, what, what was the theory behind closed stance back in those days? I, I think it was basically to use the whole field. I mean, Joe actually, I, I emphasize, emphasize him, but on that pitch from Mike Marshall was inside and he just quickly turned. And, and I think if if you start closed, it's hard for you as you start open to be able to open up too much. And sometimes you don't have enough behind the swing. Well, Joe, in the way that he closed, and I think of George Brett, I mean, George hitting the home run off of Goose Gossage uh, at Yankee Stadium in the upper deck, the Pine Tar incident a very extreme close stance and 3000 hits later and, you know, hall of famer. But I, I think it was a matter of using the whole field, which Charlie Louth taught. Maybe you don't have a lot of power, but you cover the whole plate. And I dare you to try to pitch inside of Joe Rudy because he could hit home runs the way he did. George Brett could hit home runs the way he did. But I think you stayed behind the ball a lot better with an exaggerated close stance the way those guys did in particular. And everybody else tried to follow suit, but probably not as good as those two. So they, they're making the announcements of game one, and they announced the Mets first. And I got to be honest with you, Ray. I'm like, who are these guys? Like, <laughs> I, I, 
I know who Willie Mays is, but Willie Mays is 42 years old. <laughs> right. Dusty Stobbs hurt. Bud yeah. Harrelson, I kind of know. But the rest of those guys, I had no idea. How the heck were these guys in the World Series? Their lineup was not – if you look at the numbers, their yeah. lineup was not very good. Well, you know, I've always said if you get hot at the right time, it doesn't matter who's in the lineup, you're going to win. They had a very good pitching staff, Tony, if you think of Tom Seaver leading the staff. Yeah. Um, did, by the way, did uh, did uh, Howie Rose talk about the game six starter? Yes, he uh, he mentioned how guess, if they would have gone Stone instead of Seaver, they probably would have won because you would have had Tom <laughs> Seaver in the seventh game instead of on three days rest. By the way, I, I'm trying to educate our our our, our young audience. It, Tom Seaver is one of the greatest pitchers of all time. At one point, he had the best percentage getting into the Hall of Fame for the votes. Tom yeah. Terrific is truly one of the great pitchers of all time. Absolutely, 100%. And, you know, I, I would read a lot about him, even though he kind of played at the same time. But at that time, we didn't have interleague play. So I, anytime I had a chance to read about him. But I remember that I think it was he who said, I look at a lineup and I say, okay, he goes up and down the lineup. He says, that guy's not going to beat me. So he knew in the lineup there was a certain player that he may not pitch to and rather pitch to the guy after him rather than take a chance of letting that guy beat him. But you think of that drop down and drive. He almost dragging his knee on the ground. 300-plus game winner, one of the nicest guys in the world. And, uh, you know, we just hope and pray he's doing okay up in the in the uh, wine country during these tough times and for himself. But, uh, you know, just a, a great pitcher. And I'm glad he came back on short rest because if he pitched on normal rest. And, by the way, you did mention on three days versus four. It's a four-man rotation back then, and that's why you, you think today with a five-man rotation, and, and Ken Korak said uh, the other day he saw that uh, Holtzman pitched, made 40 starts and threw something like 270 innings. I said, how about Gaylord Perry, 1972, 40 starts and 342 innings? You know, And you can't tell me that the guys in, in the era in which I caught in those 70s that were in better shape than what the pitchers are today, but I think it's all about training. And – I think it was the Mets who decided to go with a five-man rotation, but you have to start at the minor league level and you you kind of train pitchers to pitch on a five-man. But if you're on a four-man, you don't have to worry about bringing somebody back short rest. Um, of course, a lot depends, too, in getting to the World Series in the case of Seaver. But still, they had a very good pitching staff. Seaver was the top of the list. A very good, very good pitcher, but an exceptional person as well. What was it like throwing the ball back to Gaylord Perry? Get the dry side. <laughs> <laughs> did, you, did you ever throw it into center field with all that bad? No, but, you know, I, it wasn't a problem for me, but for Greg Nettles, who's playing third base, you know, ground ball would be hit to him. You'd say, what are you looking at the baseball for? And he said, I'm looking for the dry side. I don't want to throw a ball in the stands. <laughs> you know, he did it. But Gay, Gaylord was such such a thrill to catch. And, and you know, I, I talk about Gaylord would always say, I only throw what my catcher calls. Well, I mean, when you knew he had that pitch, uh, it, it was it was exceptional. It was so much fun catching him in 1972 and then of course to be traded to the A's and catch that great staff in 73-74 in but Gaylord was an unbelievable pitcher you think 40 starts and 342 inning 29 complete games sub two earn run average wow. and oh, just an unbelievable and you know what he was criticized because he would move players over but it was he I always said that he could pitch into the shift. So if he moved his shortstop over, he knew that he was going to throw the ball to the hitter. That if he hit it, that's where he was going to hit the ball. 
So it wasn't showing up the infielder. It was a matter of saying, I know what I'm going to do with the baseball. So when he hits it, you're going to be able to catch it. But Tony, Cody, that was the most fun I've ever had in my life, catching him in 1972, to be able to be behind the plate 40 starts and to uh, hear the hitters come up and some of the things that they would say. But I will say, I, I was doing an interview with uh, some guys back in Philadelphia and a great Dick Allen. And in 1972, the president, I think it was July, it was a doubleheader on Sunday. On Friday, Ken Aspermani called us in and said, uh, Gaylord, uh, the umpires now, if the manager thinks somebody's throwing, not just you, just anybody, yeah, right, uh, thinks they're throwing an, an, an illegal pitch, they can come out and check. Well, Chuck Tanner was managing the White Sox at the time. And it was it was actually, I think it was a 1-1 game or, or we might have had a one to nothing lead, which is surprising. But all of a sudden I see Dick, Boy, Dick uh, Allen come up to plate and here comes Chuck Tanner. I said, uh-oh. So he said, I want to check these. I want to check Gaylord. So Gaylord went down in his sleight of hand and wiped the back of his neck and trying to get the substance off of his back of his neck. Well, he didn't get all of it. And Dick Allen, first pitch, I called for a slider. Gaylord's wiped twice to go to the pitch. He went in the upper deck at Comiskey Park, and we ended up losing a walk-off. But, you know, it wasn't a matter. You could tell that the ball was dropping out of sight. But, you, you know, in the case of Chuck Tanner, it's like picking his his time to go out and check, and it happened to be one of the greatest hitters in the game in Dick Allen, and uh, he smoked the ball. So, But it was so much fun catching him. There's so many, so many stories. We don't have enough time to talk about what the hitters would say. But remember when uh, Gaylord, I was in the hospital, um, and Mike Epstein, he threw one to him. And, you know, Gaylord's a strong individual. And I, I remember as I was laying in the hospital ready for surgery, he threw him one and supposedly uh, Mike Epstein stepped down. He says, you throw that again, I'm going to break your blanket of blank neck. Well, first of all, you're not going to say that to Gaylord because he threw the next pitch exactly the one he said don't throw and he did and he struck him out. But Mike Epstein and Gaylord Perry, that would have been a great fight. I would have put my money on Gaylord because he was one strong individual. So he could back up everything he did on the mound, whatever pitch he threw, however he did it but he knew how to pitch and he would stay in the game right to the end. Obviously 29 complete games of 40 starts says a lot about his ability and the desire to want to stay in the game. So let's pivot to 1974 and, and you and Ken are going to be doing the broadcast yeah. at eight o'clock tomorrow night, uh, chiming in during the broadcast and game one of the 1974 world series. And we'll have the pregame show for you. I believe you're joining us, Fossey, yes, at 7.30 tomorrow yes, night. I, I am honored to be on with you and Ken on the pregame show. So, yes. But, but you know, one thing, and uh, I did a, a segment with Brody Brazil with NBC Sports California. And, you know, he said, Foss, I wasn't even born. I said, I know. But he said, kind of, what do you say and educate the fans? And, and the thing that I said, and I repeat it, because when I was traded the age, Dick Williams said, we pitch and we catch the ball. What, the one thing that I remember in the 74 World Series is that at the end of the game, Kurt Gowdy would say, well, better defense, better pitching by the Oakland A's, and they win another one. I mean, it's three to two. Four of the games, finals were three to two, and the other one was six to two. So low scoring games, but that was because of great pitching and great defense. And, you know, it was phenomenal to be able to leave Cleveland hitting fourth and catching and join the Oakland Athletics and hit eighth and catch in front of uh, actually – 
<laughs> that was it. I mean, you know, I was just happy to be in the lineup, but it, it changed completely because there was enough offense on that club. And I was fortunate that Charlie traded for me and became a catcher on two of those world championship teams. But, you know, uh, Tony, I mean, those, those teams were so good. And I think fans watching those games, they'll see Kenny Holtzman, Catfish Hunter, Vitam Blue, Blue Moon Odom, Raleigh. And those are the only five pitchers that pitched in the World Series in 1974. And they'll see those guys pitch exceptionally well to help the A's beat the Dodgers in five games. What were the Dodgers thinking about popping off about you guys? You guys have won two World Series, and now all of a sudden <laughs> they're like, hey, the majority of those guys couldn't even make our team. That's right. Like, That's right. That was just dumb. Well, it, it was, but, you know, I, I think it was a confidence. Didn't they win over 100 games that year? I, I think they did. In 1974, I know Cody can probably quickly look it up, but for some reason I, I thought at the beginning watching – a little bit of that uh, 100, 100, 102 games, something like that they won. And uh, so they they felt very confident getting the World Series. And they figured, hey, you know, and, of course, they said, we're going to win it. We're just going to beat them. And, you know, you just don't say that to a ball club that has already won two in a row because it's not like those teams, especially after winning 72 and 73, thought, okay, we're, we're done. You know, we're in the World Series. We've already got a couple championships. That's not the way it was. Those guys wanted to win. And I think that's what set them apart, and especially to be able to, to win the series the way they did. Now, have I told you about Charlie Pride in Game uh, 5? By the, way, game by, by the way, you're right. They won 102 games. Yeah. But Charlie Pride was to sing the anthem at the Coliseum. So the A's, we were up three games to one. We, we split the series in, uh, in Los Angeles, won the games three and four in Oakland. So we're getting ready to play Game 5. And Charlie Finley's there. And he calls a meeting. Late French, Frank Senchek says, okay, everybody out. And Charlie Pride was there. And Charlie Finley said, Charlie, you can stay. And I went, well, everybody's going, what are you talking about? This is a meeting with the owner. And you're going to allow somebody to stay in this meeting? So Charlie Pride sat in the front row of this meeting with Charlie Finley. And all the players are just saying, oh, it's just another Charlie Finley. But Charlie Pride was very interested in what Charlie Finley had to say. And Charlie simply said, okay, guys. After we win tonight, we're going to meet at downtown Oakland and have a parade celebrating the third consecutive world championship. And I looked over at Charlie Pride. His eyes lit up and said, what is this guy talking about? He's predicting game five victory. And, and our, uh, game five is going to be a victory for the A's, going to win the World Series. I'm already planning a parade tomorrow. And, of course, after the A's won the game, Charlie Pride had me thinking, I was in an exceptional meeting to hear Charlie Finley predict everything that actually happened. And that's exactly what happened with Charlie Pride and Charlie Finley that night. Which uh, I'm looking at it now. You had the big home run. Was that in what game was that? Game five. Game five. Game Sal. Five. Yeah. Sal drove in a run and then I hit a home run. The Dodgers tied it. And Billy Buckner in game five hit a ball to right center and Billy North went after it. It got under his glove. Reggie was backing up through a perfect strike to Dick Green, who in turn threw a perfect strike to Sal Bando at third base. And that was it because Joe Rudy then hit the home run off Mike Marshall and we won the game three to two, but, but Billy Buckner, you, you know, you can fault him, do whatever, but bottom line, he was trying to get into third base. He was leading off the inning instead of being satisfied with the double tries to stretch it to a triple. And to this day, Reggie Jackson says that's the most memorable play he ever had and made for the Oakland A's. And that says a lot for about uh, the guy who has the nickname of Mr. October and the great home run hitter that he was. Yeah, you know, Reggie's been talking about how the A's teams that he was on were uh, 
I'm now getting notifications. I get these notifications every day. It's supposed to be the A's and the Indians today at 310. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and now I get these notifications on my computer and my phone. Uh, by the way, did you get to see game one last night? Uh, of the 73? Yeah. No, but I played it. So what do you want to know? <laughs> Monty Moore's red suit and red How about tie. That? <laughs> In the big collar? Yeah, yeah. You know, I, 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 got a, I got a note from Monty because he watched those. He says, man, I didn't realize I had that much hair and it was dark. <laughs> yeah, he's got brown uh, hair. What, what a treat. What a, what a treat. And, and by the way, he wanted me to tell you guys that uh, after doing the interview, and Cody, thanks for sending it. I enjoyed uh, listening to it. But he told me after that he forgot to mention in that game um, – it would have been um, – it was a Dodger Stadium. It would have been the, the game we're going to see that, that Campy squeezed Bunt with two strikes with Hostman at third base. And, and that's how good of a bunter Campy Campaners was that he could take a two-tube fastball, ball was running inside and lays it down perfectly, and Messersmith had no chance except just to grab the ball and throw to first base, and Kenny Holtzman scored the run. So, I mean, and then we tried to add an insurance run a little bit later that uh, I think the fans are really going to be interested in see what Joe Ferguson did late in the game at Dodger Stadium in that game, cutting in front of Jimmy Wynn. And um, unfortunately, Jimmy Wynn is not here to be able to watch this game, one of the recent uh, – players to pass away but you know they had a great team Tony. i mean you look at that infield and you've yeah. talked about it before you know the same infield every day and i think there was a certain amount of confidence um to believe that they were that good and with sutton and, and messersmith and of course with coming out of the bullpen mike marshall who in, in one season um threw over 101 innings or 200 innings. I mean, 100, oh no, it was 100 appearances and 200 innings, I think, something like that. But just an unbelievable pitcher coming out of the bullpen with a screwball. And uh, But, you know, it was a great series, but I'll be honest with you, we did not want to go back to Los Angeles. So it was very nice and we were happy to win at the Coliseum and have those great fans enjoy the third consecutive world championship. Yeah, Garvey, Lopes, Russell, and the Penguin, Ron Say. Yeah, yeah. It was a, it was no doubt a uh, a legit infield, and I was thinking, I was thinking about this last night, listening to Monty uh, on, on the national coverage with Kurt Gowdy, yeah. and you think of all the big games Monty Moore was a part of. Yeah, I just how did he not win the Ford C Frick Award? You know, I I, I was thinking the same thing, Tony. I really was thinking the same thing because he did national work, which a lot of times if you do the national work, then that kind of sets you apart, at least on your resume. But, you know, as as, as he told you guys, he was able to get the Saturday game of the week because of what he did for the A's uh, in those three world championships that he broadcast. NBC liked him so much. They said, hey, you know, you need to do our Saturday game. So he worked with, uh, uh, was it uh, Wes Parker in – Maury Wills, I think, in the three years that he worked. So, no, he, he's a great broadcaster. I think a lot of times, Townie, he was criticized. Everybody thought, oh, he's Charlie's, uh, um, you know, everything that he sees, he'll go straight to Charlie. That was not the case. And, and I think in the interview that you did with him was, was ex exceptional, by the way, that, that he talked about some of the things that Charlie had done. So it, it was uh, like the misconception of what people maybe thought that he was doing. And in actuality, he was just a great broadcaster and part of some phenomenal teams. 
I know why you like him so much. He brought you up in the pregame show of game one of the 73 <laughs> World Series when Kirk Gowdy's asking about how good the A's are. And he brought up <laughs> trading for Ray Fossey and how you made their defense so much better. Well, you know, I, I, I'm always appreciative of what Monty talks about. But if you go back to the play, uh, the uh, league championship, the whole idea was throwing out base runners. And Monty used to do the uh, the programs. And I remember reading the kind of the bio uh, Carol and I, we had uh, uh, 10 speed bicycles. We were riding the bikes. That was our picture. But in the the article, what he talked about is how much that the A's appreciated what I did in coming over and throwing out base runners because the Orioles had some pretty good base stealers. And I kind of shut down a little bit by throwing out the base runners. So it was nice of him probably to remember what happened then uh, to bring it up in the World Series. But Monty's a good man, always has been, always will be. And uh, um I'm glad you guys had him on because he's an exceptional person. And you got him for a long time too, Tony. You had yeah, him on for were, a long time. You you were worried. I mean, Monty, I think we went 18 minutes with Monty. You probably could have gone longer. I mean, he, he had some stories probably couldn't tell or didn't tell, but couldn't tell either. <laughs> anyway. You know, for, no, you for you personally, I know something that was really big for you is the fact that your father-in-law got to watch all these games and oh, got yeah. to come, and he never had a son, and you were like a son to him. Uh, that had to be big to have him there during the World Series times. Tally, you know, it's um, I, I'm glad you brought that up because uh, it's something that I'll never forget. Caroline got married. We were in Cleveland, got traded to Oakland. And uh, John Mancuso, my late father-in-law, he and his wife, uh, Bernice, I said he, he bought two season tickets at the end of the dugout, first row, first row. And I said, why did you do that? I could leave you tickets. He said, no, didn't want to bother you. So they'd go to Francesco's restaurant, have linguine and clams, come over to the ball game and sit and watch every game. And then, of course, to go to the World Series in 73 and 74. And unfortunately, he passed away on uh, April 1st of 1975. But it, it was like a godsend that, uh, and, and I've said it before, to be traded to the A's, 73, 74, 75, and then go back to Cleveland. It's like, I went out there, got traded, playing a couple of world championship teams. He got to see those games, and uh, he was a proud, proud man. I could never beat him in golf, though, Tony. <laughs> I would try, and he could chip and putt better than anybody I've ever seen. But um, he was a farmer up in the valley, and everybody knew John Mancuso up in the in the valley. And just a tremendous person, and uh, miss him dearly, but it's been a long time. But he did get a chance to see those world championship games, and he really, he really enjoyed it. He really enjoyed it a lot. You mentioned Francesco's. I always loved the bar. <laughs> they had a great bar. You could sit there. You could have dinner. I remember I, 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 God, who was, I think it was Jared Parker. I hosted the A's fan club. I did a thing with Jared Parker there. But I always loved after A's games, day yeah. game, you go have a little dinner and have a cocktail over at Francesco's. That place was great. They had the best chicken parmesan and pasta. And the thing that set them apart, was they would make the Caesar salad at your table. Do you ever have one of the Caesar salads? No, I always, I, I never oh. ate in the, I always, I, I mean, I, I know this is not going to shock people. I was always <laughs> at the bar. I never ate at the table, but I ate at the bar. And, oh, I loved, <laughs> that, they were always packed. What happened? They to were, that? Uh, the land's very valuable, I guess. I don't know. But Teresa, who uh, took over her father, uh, we we all knew the father, and of course they 
they open up about the same time the A's started having success. And uh, we used to go there all the time. Matter of fact, I tell the story that Francesco's would offer two home runs for our two dinners for every home run hit by an A's player at the Coliseum. Gene Tennis in one year hit about 20. We had so many dinners. He said, let's have the whole team go over to have dinner. <laughs> and it was so much fun. Gino hit another home run. We said, okay, there's two more dinners to Francesco's. But it was a great place and uh, miss it miss it badly because, I mean, they had great food. And yeah. go over there after after a, a, a night game, they'd stay open late and, uh, and take care of the fans. But uh, – you know, they're missed as well, but time goes on and uh, let's just hope and pray we get baseball back sooner than later. And that in itself is a whole nother story. I, I, I enjoy talking to you guys and, and seeing you guys, but, you know, I want to see you down on the field doing those interviews, man, just uh, doing what you and Cody normally do down there. Yeah, I think, you know, from what I'm hearing and even the commissioner says he thinks there's a season and behind the closed doors, I'm hearing that a lot is being worked on and that at some point we're going to get this thing going. But more importantly, tomorrow night, Eight o'clock yep, right. on A's cast, you're going to hear Ken Korak and Ray Fossey, and you're going to give us the details of the game because you played in the game. Yeah. Uh, I think you hit – did you hit seventh in this game in game one? I don't know. I was just happy to be in the lineup, Tony. <laughs> <laughs> because remember, even though the DH came in 73, the DH was not used in the World Series. And that's why Kenny Holtzman and, – and if there's one thing that set the A's apart is the fact the A's pitchers were very good hitters. And if you think back to Catfish's perfect game, what, he had three hits and uh, three ribbies or something like that? He always talked about, you know, they wouldn't let me take my batting practice. And, you know, so when you're pitching, you, you got to go get rest. He said, no, I want to take my, my swings in the cage. But those guys could hit. And, and But you know what? In this time that we've had today and talking about it, I'm looking forward to tomorrow night because there are a lot of things that happen that I haven't told you. And I wanted to save it to tomorrow night. So not only you and Cody right. can hear, but I want the fans to be able to hear it as well because you know we we there's a lot of good things that happen uh, even in game one, even before game one. We could talk about maybe we'll do that in the pregame show because Captain Sal kind of let us in on what happened. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, well, I, I can tell you what happened to me when it did happen, but so we got the legendary moments pregame show at 7.30. First pitch is going to be, well, it won't. First pitch will probably be around 8.10, but you've got to see all the players get announced. It'll be really cool from Dodger Stadium. You can watch the game on NBC Sports California or stay with us here on A's Cast and listen to Ken Korak and the face of the franchise, the great Ray you, you know, Tony, if I could interject, correct me if I'm wrong, people can watch the game, turn down the volume, and listen to us on A's Cast? Correct. That something? They can do that. So, yeah. you know, they can watch it and hear us talk about it. So I, I think that's uh, for the fans, especially those who have not seen those great teams. I think that's something that uh, they will enjoy seeing. And a few nuggets, maybe perhaps for somebody who is fortunate to be behind the plate and catching the great Kenny Holtzman. Well, I don't want to go beyond that because <laughs> I don't want to give too much awesome. away. Save it. <laughs> Tomorrow night. Well, you'll be yeah. on the pregame show with us tomorrow yeah. night. So we'll talk to you tomorrow night at 730. All right, guys. Good talk to you. Have a great day. Cody, great, great t-shirt. I'm glad you brought that up. But put you gotta put you got to put the 70s t-shirt on. Three consecutive world championships. If you can mail me one and I'll I'll wear it tomorrow for pregame. <laughs> I might go find a sombrero tomorrow. Wear it tomorrow. <laughs> greatest Ray Fossey picture of all time. <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you. See you, Foss. Be well, Foss. We'll talk, talk to you tomorrow night. Talk to you tomorrow night. Have a good evening. Oh, God. Love that man.
Please the get best. The, please get the sombrero. We can we can tweet it out. We can put it on social media if you if you put the sombrero on. Where am I going to get a sombrero? I don't know. You we, if, Chevys? I'm sure, they, you, I'm sure you have one lying around your house somewhere. Check your garage. I got, <laughs> you know what? To be honest with you, I remember when my kids were younger. You know, you you have your birthday, and I have twins, obviously, a lot of people you know. And I remember one time we went to Chevys, and they both got sombreros, but I have no idea where they are. Uh, Chevys right. would probably be – and I, there's a Chevys uh, on Alameda Expressway, not that far from my house. That'd be like the only place I could think. Where the hell am I going to get a sombrero? You call them, you're like, hey, so uh, what would you like to order, sir? Actually, I just want to know if I can get a sombrero from you. I don't really. Salsa, a margarita, and a sombrero. <laughs> By the way, Chevron and its brands are committed to reliably providing fuel to customers, even during an emergency. The safety and health of workers, customers, and the communities where Chevron operates are primary concerns. In Northern California, Chevron and Texaco stations are open for business supplying quality fuels in a safe manner. So Ray can save the information, but Captain Sal gave it up to us. So literally, Captain Sal, so whoever the visiting clubhouse guy for Dodger Stadium in 1974 goes to Sal Bando and goes, hey, are all these stories true? You guys are just a bunch of ruffians. And you fight each other and you fight everybody. And, and Sal's like, ah, no, that's overblown. And then, like, almost immediately, Blue Moon and Raleigh Fingers, they go to blows. And Raleigh Fingers has to have stitches. World Series. These guys are fighting each other before the start of the World Series. This is literally this the most dysfunctional great group of all time you name me i mean i don't know i mean maybe there isn't hockey or or football or basketball but you name me a dynasty that was this dysfunctional where the players hate the owner i bet the owner really doesn't like the players the owners in chicago running the team by phone the players are fighting each other constantly but they're winning World Series. I mean, this is such a drama team. It is unbelievable. Like, when you really look back and think about the swing and A's, it's a six, It's success and dysfunction. It's crazy to think that they won as much as they did despite all the things against them. Because normally, when the players are fighting with each other all the time, at a, I mean, this is a professional level. It's the big leagues. Players fighting each other, players fighting the owner, owner's not even in town. He can't even watch the games. He's listening by phone and still making trades and doing all these things. It's It's got to be – I wish they would really go back and research this team and really do this team justice because it. I don't know if we've ever seen anything like it. We'll definitely never see anything like it again. I think one of the most alarming things I heard from any of the interviews we've done with Raleigh or Sal or Reggie and Fossey is when we had Monty on and Monty mentioned how everyone always thought Charlie Finley told me what to say. The only time he ever told me what to say is when he called and had me announce a trade on the radio. And it's like, wait, what? So the players didn't even know. They found out from listening on transistor radios in the bullpen that either they got traded or someone on the team was traded in a trade because the owner wasn't there to tell anyone. Owner slash GM. 
Yeah. I, uh, that just blew my mind when I heard that. Because you know that would never happen in today's well, – well, obviously it would never happen in today's game because we saw it a couple years ago at the Mets and Wilmer Flores where it's all over social media and the fans are telling the players before anyone else can. <laughs> and and think about how – and I'm not sure I, – I, I doubt Charlie Finley's the first guy to do it, but he would constantly call Monty Moore and say, promote T-shirt night or helmet night. They used to give away those plastic helmets. You know, I, I don't know if they did fireworks. Hell, we don't know what they did back then. None of us were, you know, I was I was born in 72. I don't know what was going on back then, but, you know, whatever the promotions were, it wasn't bobbleheads, it wasn't Beanie Babies, but whatever the promotions were, Charlie would tell Monty, hey, promote this, always be promoting, and what do we do today? How many times do I have to read about fireworks? It's, it's Disney firework night. It's, you know. And that they were doing that in the seventies and we continue to do it today. All right. Earlier today, I got a chance once again, familiar voices. That's what we're trying to do and having on Ron Washington and having on Ray Fossey makes you feel good. How about Sean Manaya? earlier today? We got to tape with Sean Manaya and to talk about when he threw the no hitter two years ago, against the Boston Red Sox. It was a special night in A's history. Here is the big left-hander. Well, now joining us here on A's Cast Live to relive one of the great moments in Oakland A's history is the big left-hander, Sean Manaya to talk about his no-hitter against the Boston Red Sox. Sean, have you been? It's been a while since we've seen you down to spring training. I know. It feels like forever uh, that we left, but um, you now since the whole quarantine thing started it's uh been pretty boring but you know just trying to make the the most with the time that i got so um yeah just uh, doing as much many things as i can to keep my mind occupied you know the one thing we've tried to do here with a's cast live is bring on familiar voices because i think for like a's fans it's kind of like their release to hear whether it's players whether it's bob melvin or scott emerson it's just a release for people. It's big for them to hear your voice. So we, we, we really appreciate you coming on today. And, and when you look back, what are those fond memories for you when you look back as really the greatest moment of your career? Uh, yeah, I mean, it was uh, like the whole day or like uh, you're you just talking about like, I guess, like certain things throughout the game or like, is that what, is that what you're asking? Yeah, well, you know, take us through. Let, 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 that's a perfect way to go through it. What was it like getting ready for that game? Because, you know, this is a really good lineup you're facing. This is the Boston Red Sox. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the night before, I remember uh, vividly, like, I think we, we lost, like, a really close game uh, to them. Like, they came back in, like, the ninth or something. I, I don't know. Like, they, it, like the, the loss really stung. And uh, I remember them celebrating, and I was like, all right. Um, cause I already had like a, um, like on a personal level, you know, those guys that owned me, um, especially like the first two games I pitched in Fenway, like, I think I, you know, when it combined like four innings or something like that, like wasn't good. Um, so like personally, like I was already like upset, uh, and I was like ready, ready for that game. Um, and then just like that, the night before, like the night before I was about to pitch, uh, I remember them like that stuff happening. I was like, all right, like this is, uh, this is it. And, um, yeah, I think I had a little bit extra focus that day. I don't, I don't know. I mean, it was pretty normal altogether. Like I, uh, did my regular routine when I got breakfast and then, 
you know, chilled out, did all that stuff. And then it wasn't uh, really much different than any other start. Uh, didn't feel any better. Didn't feel like my pitches were any sharper or anything like that. It was just a normal day. And um, yeah, it was just a uh, good thing to happen. Had, had a little bit of luck on my side. And uh, yeah, obviously like no hitter happened. And that was, uh, that was wild. But um, yeah, overall, it was just a pretty normal day um, altogether. At what point in the game do you say to yourself, I'm throwing a no-hitter? And it really kind of, you know, I don't know if it's the sixth, it's the seventh inning. When in the game did you realize, wow, this is going on? Uh, Yeah, I mean, honestly, like, I didn't really notice it until uh, the seventh, I'd say, seventh or eighth. Um, Because, like, after Marcus dropped the ball, I thought it was a hit. And uh, at the time, like, I felt like I was pretty uh, superstitious. And for some reason, like, I never, like, checked the scoreboard. So, um, yeah, I didn't even, like, think anything about it. As soon as they, like, he dropped the ball, then I just uh, was like, all right, well, there's that. It's a hit. And uh, let's just keep going. So, uh, yeah, that's pretty much what happened. And then, you know, I uh, started realizing that nobody was sitting on the bench. And um, <laughs> that's when I, like, finally looked up and saw that there was no hit still. And I was like, oh, okay. This is, uh, this is actually happening. So, yeah, it was, uh, it was wild. Yeah, it's so funny how, like, no one will talk to you and everybody's superstitious. <laughs> it's, it's, pretty, <laughs> it's, it's pretty ridiculous. But what's it like going through that when all, all of a sudden, like, you're like a pariah and no one wants to talk to you? Uh, yeah, I mean, when I finally realized it was pretty late in the game and, uh, you know, I uh, kind of, like, owned, owned up to it or uh accepted it i guess and uh, just just went along with it it uh you know when i realized that nobody was uh sitting on the bench and it was like all right let's uh you know lock it back in or let's just uh you know keep doing what we've been doing uh no reason to change it up and uh just keep this thing rolling and uh i think that that's that really uh helped put my mind at ease and not think about things too much and you know, not try to make it a bigger situation than what it was so um yeah, I think that that helped having that that mindset. Yeah, and and, and one of the great things about pitching a no hitter is the fact that you actually throw a complete game is something that we don't see <laughs> a hell a whole heck of a lot in in today's baseball. And that's mm-hmm. gotta also be one of the gratifying things is that you win all nine. Yeah, I mean that at the end of the day, I think that's what is like I'm. Um, really really proud of um is that the fact that i have a complete game and complete game shutout in uh, the big leagues um you know like a no hitter like everybody you know wants to strive towards that and um you know like that would be awesome to do every time but realistically that's you know not going to happen um and i i kind of think that um having that mindset just leads to like frustration and kind of like being perfect every time you know like if you're you mess up one pitch then then it's like, well, you're not perfect. And then you like that mindset, you just, uh, everything switches. But, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, going out there and going as deep as you possibly can, or, you know, striving towards, uh, complete games, um, is a little more attainable and, uh, like a more consistent goal, I guess. And, you know, if you end up throwing a no hitter, that's, that's awesome. You know, it's, uh, you go down history and all this cool stuff, but, um, yeah, having that mindset where you're like, Man, I'm gonna go out there and throw a no hitter every single time. I think that just you know leads to a little more frustration. 
So you throw the no-hitter, and it, we all celebrate. It was a huge moment. What was it like for you after the game that night to really settle down and go, wow, I just threw a no-hitter against the Boston Red Sox? <laughs> uh, yeah, it was uh, it was crazy. I mean, I, I remember sitting in my room and uh, watching the highlights over and over. Uh, I don't think I really uh, went to bed that night. Uh, you know, I was still amped up from the game, obviously. And then, uh, um, yeah, I think we had a day game the next day. So it was like, you know, I wasn't going to get much sleep anyway. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it was, they didn't really do much. Just uh, sat in the house and um, reflect on everything. And it was, uh, it was dope. Um, yeah, I didn't really uh, – I guess I didn't really celebrate that much. But, um, you know, I just got to do what the boys on the field. So that was more than enough. You know, I, I think for you, the number one thing going forward, and I know we've talked about this, we talked about this down in Arizona, it's about being healthy and that for the first time in a while for you, you're healthy once again. And once we get this thing rolling in 2020, that that you feel like you can just let it go again. How good does that feel for you, knowing that you are healthy? Uh, you know, I'll tell you, it adds a whole bunch of confidence too um i i definitely say through all the uh stuff i've gone through uh you know shoulder rehab and then um you know wild card game and all this stuff like um honestly it's just made me like want things a little bit more and having uh you know having the health and that like not having in the back of my head that like my you know shoulder or whatever is hurting um you know you can go out there and like let things rip um yeah it just adds a whole bunch more confidence uh, to me and myself. And I mean, I can already like just the amount of confidence I have in myself right now is, uh, is like more than I've had in a very, very long time. So uh, yeah, being healthy is, uh, is uh, the goal. And, you know, when you, when you're able to do that and you're able to find some uh, consistency, um, you know, that confidence level just keeps going up and up. You know, I remember talking to Chris Bassett about this because, you know, everybody's like, oh, you just have Tommy John and you're good. And, of course, it just, it's just that the human body doesn't work that work that way. Mm-hmm. And Chris talked about struggling going through Tommy John and just the relief that came back into his life of being able to throw the baseball again the way he's done his entire life and to feel good. And I think of also you and going into this season – to really, when you look at this pitching staff, which is six guys deep, and this is going to be a shortened season, I really like the way you guys match up right now because of the strength of what you guys have as starters. Just talk mm-hmm. about how excited you are to start this 2020 season with your guys' group because it is so strong. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, you know, let the boys loose and um, see what we can do. But, you know, I really believe that um, you know, if everybody can stay healthy, um, which is the number one thing, uh, you know, I think our rotation's one of the best in the league. And, uh, you know, I think everybody believes in that. And we all like, you know, lean on each other for whatever it may be. And, uh, you know, I think that's where our strength comes. Like, you know, individually, we're, you know, really, really good. But, um, you know, when we all come together and, you know, do things together and, and, um, you know, just become like, a staff like a true staff um that's where the the strength lies so um i mean the boys are are ready um and we're you know really excited for for the season so 
Um, it should be fun being able to compete against, obviously, like actual competition and, and uh, other teams and see where we're at, but, um, you know, against each other too. Uh, I think competition's healthy and, you know, pushes, pushes, pushes each other to, uh, you know, be as best as you can. And, um, you know, I think we have that. So it's, uh, I'm really, really excited. And it's, uh, yeah, hopefully we're able to, able to start the season and, uh, you know, get things going. Let's end on this. How many people come up to you and they mention that they were there that night and what that no hitter meant to them as fans? Uh, you know, that's, that's one of my favorite things. Uh, like personally, I mean, no hitter is awesome. And, uh, you know, it's, it's cool, but like, I'm kind of <laughs> over talking about it, I guess. I, I, don't, I mean, I personally, I don't really like talk about myself to begin with. So, uh, I know like no hitter is like awesome, but to me, it's really cool hearing where people were or like, you know, like, yeah, man, we were uh, chilling at a bar and like, you know, uh, ESPN started putting the, you know, from the eighth inning on or whatever. And, you know, we celebrated once he threw it. I was like, hell yeah, that's, that's awesome. Like, I love, I love hearing that stuff. And, um, yeah, to me, that's, uh, that's really, really cool. And, you know, getting the, the fan, uh, side of it. Uh, I mean, I've seen a couple of videos from the, uh, from like a fan perspective, you know, the recording, uh, like the final out and just seeing the whole crowd go crazy is, uh, is absolutely wild. So, um, you know, I'm glad I got to be a part of that. And, um, you know, I'm able to share those memories with uh, random people, um, people that come up to me and, and just tell me how uh, what their experience was. Because uh, to me, that was that was probably the, the cooler part is just hearing what everybody else was doing that day. You know, I never thought we'd have a conversation like this, but but it, it is great hearing your voice. I know Aves fans are truly going to appreciate it. We thank you for the time and reliving one of the magical days in Oakland A's history. <laughs> Be well, be safe, and we'll talk to you again once the season starts. Yes, sir. See you guys soon. The big left-hander, Sean Manaya. Boy, did he throw the ball great at the end of last season and uh, earned himself a start in the wild card game. It didn't go as well as uh, I think everybody liked, but he even said down in spring training that he learned from the experience and – you know, you, you start looking at this rotation with Mike Fires, Frankie Montas is back, Sean Manaya, Puck, Lazardo, Bassett. I mean, they're really right now six deep. And that will play that will play well. And once we get this thing started once again. Can't wait, because this team's confidence, and I think, Cody, we, we saw it down at spring training. This team's confidence is it's sky high, and they now have the expectations of more than, hey, let's get into the postseason. They really believe they're one of the best teams in baseball and that they can win it all. The one thing I like about them, too, is they like to talk about each other. Opposed to just talking about themselves. Like Even when I even said, he goes, you know, I don't like talking about myself. I like to talk about – the team more, and we, I've gathered that from a lot of the guys we talked to. They like to talk about their teammates more than about their in, individual accolades, and that's a good sign for a team that's building and they, you know, they have a good camaraderie together. And they are t- as talented as anyone in baseball. I mean, we've seen they won 97 games back to back years, and I, I think that once we get this going again, they have to be the uh, the favorites to win the AL West because you know you never know what's gonna, what to expect from Houston and. 
even if the simulated season standings are telling you that the Mariners are right there, they're, they're not going to be there. So a lot of expectations this year, and, and uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing them on the field again and, and what they can do because these guys believe in each other, and that's a that's a dangerous thing because, like you mentioned, they have great pitching and great defense, and a lot of the teams that win, the Nationals last year, what did they have? Great pitching and they had good defense, and the A's have both of that, and that's what it was like in the 72, 73, and 74 World Series teams. So uh, looking forward to them getting back on the field, whatever that, that is, and, and just continuing to grow off and build up the 97 wins in back-to-back years. I, I'm already over this Michael Jordan thing, and then now it's popping up on my phone even more about how Buster only had on Sandy Alderson that Sandy Alderson was going to offer him a major league contract. I have the audio if you want to hear it. Did you not see him play? He put. Did you not? You offered him a major league contract. I went back. Really? I went back and looked. The uh, the A's weren't having a great year that year for the strike. They uh, they were 13th out of 14th in attendance, so they could have uh, drawn from getting uh, MJ just to be in the dugout. I mean, Sandy mentioned that he, he was – he they didn't have the tw- – they didn't know who the 25th man on the roster was going to be. So, I, I mean, like, after going back to look and, you know, we broke down who was better, Jordan or Tebow, when it comes to minor league stats, I, I wouldn't have signed him. But I can understand where the argument comes in for wanting to sign him because of the popularity of it being Michael Jordan. I mean, he wasn't good. Do, do, do you want to hear Sandy's rationale behind it? Yeah, I want to hear it. Okay. The story is timely because of uh, the ESPN documentary that started last night on Michael Jordan and his uh, last championship year with the Chicago Bulls. You recall when Jordan stopped playing basketball and decided to try baseball and was uh, ultimately went down to the Birmingham Barons, uh, Chicago White Sox affiliate. When I heard that that was happening or about to happen, I called his agent right away and said, hey, look. I understand he may be going to double A. I don't even know who the 25th man is on our team, our major league team right now. I will sign him and put him on the major league roster. He'll be part of our 25 man team tomorrow. You're kidding. No. <laughs> and you know, the, the agent hemmed and hawed. I don't know whether he said, I'll get back to you or let me think about it or what have you, but it never came to fruition, but I was totally serious. Can you imagine Coming to the big leagues, you haven't played since what? Did he play in high school? I don't even remember. Pro- oh, that's a good question now. I would hope so if that's why he won. I don't think he played like his senior year. If anything, he played like JV baseball. Maybe. I, I, can you imagine playing at the major? How bad? It would have been, oh, Jordan's on the eight. How bad that would have been. First of all, he's not going to play every day. He couldn't even hit double A, let alone big leagues. It would have been, he would have been embarrassed. He literally would have been embarrassed for a guy that is ultimate greatness, as we know in Michael Jordan. To go from being greatness, supposedly I'm retired, slash, Hey, you got to sit out because of the gambling, allegedly. So um, you're going to go from being greatness to just being embarrassed night after night after night. I don't see it. Like, like I, at least in Double A, he wasn't doing this in front of a national audience on an everyday basis. I mean, if he was doing this at the big league level, they would have gone to every one of his at bats on ESPN. 
the coverage. Now, it would have been great at first, but once again, when you're going to look, he would have looked so bad. It would have been embarrassing for one of the greatest athletes we've ever seen. Yeah, I can see where you're coming from with that. And you know who we could ask about this? Who knows a lot of who was around MJ when he was with the Barons? That'd be the great Ken Korak. Korak mentioned to me yesterday when we were talking that uh, he was around MJ in 94. So next time we talk to Ken, uh, that's something we have to ask him about, you know, just being around Michael. I could see it from the perspective, like I mentioned, that you want to draw fans into the stands. Like I said, the A's were 13th out of 14th in the American League at that time in in attendance in in 1994. Remember, the season ended, I believe it was like August 12th of 94 because of the strike. The A's were 51 and 63. So do you want to put Jordan on that team? I mean, I have – I have the roster. I was looking at the roster earlier, and like, yeah, McGuire was on there, and you had, you know, you had, you didn't really have a lot of the guys left from the '89 team. Like Terry Steinbach was still there, but like, you had Scott Brocious, you had McGuire. Your outfield was Ricky, Stan Javier, and and Ruben Sierra. Um, I, I mean, was he started with those guys? No, but just knowing that Michael Jordan was on the roster, you're going to get a lot of excitement around a team that wasn't very good that year. But I, I know, see where you're coming from. Why would you want to get embarrassed like that after not playing? It's it's like Tebow. Tebow doesn't play baseball forever, and he's getting embarrassed in Double A. And and every year they're like the Mets, are like, hey, we might put him on the major league roster. We might call him up next year. You're doing that just to sell tickets. That's what if you're doing anything, you're trying to get attention and sell tickets. With Jordan, I mean, that's that that that's the bearded lady right there. Essentially, yes. At the circus, the bearded lady, and and let me tell you something. Once he gets up and he gets embarrassed, who's going to be like, hey, we got to go to the ballpark to watch Michael Jordan sit on the bench? That that that, that wouldn't have lasted very long. Yeah, I don't think – I think that – I don't think – well, I mean, <laughs> in Michael's defense, he would only have to worry about until August because the season ended because of the strike. But yeah. it, it's still – I mean, he would he have made it until August if he was playing? Because I don't, I don't think he would have been very successful. I mean, who knows? We've seen a lot of stranger things happen, but – I. I mean, he couldn't hit in double-A. Who's saying he's going to be able to hit major league pitching without playing baseball since, like, pretty much high school? And let's face it, Jordan, I, I, we don't know how far this went, but Jordan's smart. I mean, you think Mike, Michael Jordan knows if I go to major league baseball right away, I'm going to look like a fool. He had to have known that. There's no way he would do that to himself. No, I no. mean that would just be the, the amount of attention and and the failure. That just would have been that would have been uh, that would have been awful. And I would not have wanted to seen Michael Jordan be a complete failure when knowing the greatness of Michael Jordan. I mean that just would have been awful. All right, earlier today we caught up with another A's legend as we continue to get you ready for all these different World Series games tomorrow night. Here on A's Cast at 8 o'clock, it's game one of the 1974 World Series. We will have the pregame show, Legendary Moments, at 7.30. Ken Korak will join me along with Ray Fossey. They're going to be giving commentary during the game on A's Cast. And, of course, you can watch the game, too, on NBC Sports California at 8 o'clock. So you can turn the volume down. Well, Turn the volume down, listen to Ken, and listen to – but at least listen to the pregame show because Monty Moore will be on. It's been great listening to Monty Moore. But turn the volume down on your TV and listen to Ken and Ray give their commentary while you watch the game on NBC Sports California, once again, starting at 8 o'clock. 
a man that was a part of all three straight World Series. Dick Green joined me earlier today. The second baseman, a gentleman, a great guy. Here's a man that's won three World Series rings. Well, now joining us, it is such a treat to relive all of these great World Series. And you think about this second baseman, what a great glove. And he's a three-time World Series champion. The great Dick Green joins us here on A's Cast Live. Dick, how are you? How have you been? It's been a while since we've last chatted. Yes, it has. Uh, I've been fine. Um, hey, I had a birthday yesterday. I'm almost 80 now, so... Uh, um, I'm just like the rest of the company. I'm uh, country. I'm just staying home and uh, and enjoying uh, my wife, I guess. Yeah, April 21st, you turned 79. And it's great that we have you here. <laughs> and, you know, you're one of the guys that went from Kansas City to Oakland. Not everybody did that in this fantastic run of three straight World Series. What was that like transitioning from Kansas City and then coming out to Oakland in 1968? Well, uh, we uh, Kansas City was a it was a good baseball town, and uh, uh, I had a lot of fun there, and that's where I started. Uh, actually, uh, the last year or two while we were in Kansas City, um, uh, Rick Mundy, Reggie Jackson, Sal Bando, Joe Rudy, um, uh, Catfish Hunter, uh, we were all together uh, before we went to Oakland. So we were all kind of, they, they all, I got there a little bit earlier than everybody else, but uh, um, we knew we were uh, going to be good uh, uh, in, a, in a couple of years. You know, the one thing that we really have noticed through these times is how all of you were in either your prime or you were a young ball player like Vita Blue. You know, we weren't, I mean, really like Campy was the only guy when you look at the prominent core that was in his thirties. I mean, talk about how you guys were pretty much all in your prime and boy, what a run it was. Well, um, Campy and I were uh, one of the older ones. Uh, Daryl Knowles, another left-hander, he was a little older, but everybody else was, uh, you're right, uh, in the pretty, pretty much in their prime. We, um, uh, we didn't get along too well um, when we were uh, not playing on the field, but when we got on the field, we played pretty well. <laughs> Sal Bando told us the story, the captain, about how in 1974 you guys were down in L.A. and the guy running the clubhouse in Los Angeles, <laughs> goes, hey, we hear you guys are a wild bunch. And, and Sal goes, no, 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 that's all overrated. And then all of a sudden, like a fight broke out between – Raleigh and Blue Moon. I mean, what was that like for you guys that you constantly there was everybody couldn't stand Charlie Finley. You guys were battling each other in the clubhouse, but yet you guys were world champions three straight years. What was what was what was going on in that clubhouse? It just seems crazy. Well, there was uh, a lot of eagle eagle. Uh, uh, everybody had a pretty good eagle. Um, <laughs> It wasn't that bad. Uh, every now and then, uh, a couple guys would uh, would clash. But uh, once we got on the field, we uh, we knew what to do. You know, one of the hallmarks of your guys' teams is defense. Of course, you were a great defensive player. 
uh, you with Campy up the middle. Uh, just talk about what Dick Williams really installed in you guys at the hallmark of your clubs in the end was pitching, we know, but also it was great defense. Yes, that's what we uh, pride ourselves on. Um, that's what really wins most games is uh, uh, pitching and defense. And I don't know if that's true nowadays or not with the, with the big, strong guys and the hitting the home runs. But uh, back in our day, uh, it was pitching and defense that won games, especially, uh, especially in a uh, short series like the World Series. And when you think about your guys' pitching, and we're really getting to see it now that we're replaying these old games. I mean, your starters, when you start talking about Catfish Hunter and Kenny Holtzman and you got Vita Blue and then Blue Moon, talk about your starters and how you could just ride these guys because they really were so special. Actually, Raleigh Fingers started. Uh, he was a starter earlier in his career, and then uh, uh, he became one of the best relievers. But I think one of the secrets of uh, playing defense behind those uh, pitchers, especially Holtzman and, and Catfish, they knew how to pitch. In the, and, and, and when I say how to pitch, they threw the ball where it was supposed to be thrown. Uh, the catcher would indicate uh, where uh, the ball was supposed to be thrown and what kind of pitcher it was. And, of course, the second baseman and the shortstop uh, knew exactly what was coming all the time because we could see the, the signals. But we played the hitters, and, of course, we, just like they do, they study the hitters nowadays, but we studied the hitters before every uh, series, too. And uh, if the pitchers can throw the ball where they're supposed to throw the ball, uh, and we know if the hitter is going to hit that pitch, we know where he's going likely going to hit it. So we positioned ourselves accordingly to every pitch. Uh, and I don't know if they do that nowadays or not. They get up there and hit home runs, and they're so much stronger and, uh, than we are when when we uh, played because uh, <laughs> after we played during the season, we had to go home and get a job. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you had 80 home runs in your career? Uh, I hit them mostly uh, earlier in my career, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, we're now going to be going into the 1974 World Series, and it's against the Los Angeles Dodgers. And for some reason, I have no idea why, the Dodger players started giving you guys bulletin board material. You've won two straight World Series, and they start talking about how a lot of you guys couldn't play on their team. And then you guys just mow right through the Los Angeles Dodgers. Take us through what it was like to play in the 1974 World Series. Well, I, I thought the 72 World Series was, was, you know, we were lucky to be there. We, we just wanted to make sure that we weren't going to do anything bad. Uh, 73, we, uh, we, we got a little better. And then, of course, I think our best team was 1974. Uh, the Dodgers had a very good team. Uh, they had good relief pitching. They, they, they had an all-around team. But they did have some bulletin uh, board stuff. Uh, I don't know who who uh, spouted off, but uh, it helped us a little bit. It gave us a little incentive. Uh, they said, I think there are one or two guys on their whole starting lineup uh, is all that could make their team. And uh, uh, the 74 World Series is kind of special to me. I, I didn't get a hit, but I did catch a few balls and 
made some plays. Yeah, you got the Babe Ruth Award in 1974. I did. I got to go to New York and accept the Babe Ruth Award. <laughs> and I didn't have a hit. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, when you, play, when you play great defense, and that's kind uh, yeah. of something I think is pretty cool, is that you were awarded, as you said, you didn't get a hit, but you got this big award, but it was based on defense, and defense is what wins championships. That's true. Yeah, actually, it was called the Most Valuable Player Award. But uh, I also got that award in Kansas City. I, uh, they gave me uh, the same award in Kansas City. But Raleigh got the what, what, back then. I think it was the Sporting News or something like that award. He got the car. I didn't get any car. <laughs> <laughs> When you look back on it now and to think about winning three straight World Series, only you guys and the New York Yankees have ever done that before. What's it like for you to look back and think of, of the greatness you truly were a part of? Yeah, I kind of feel very proud to be with the team that I that I uh, played with. Of course, we had three uh, Hall of Famers on it, and uh, I was just a very small cog in the in the team, but it, it does take a little bit of, of uh, defense and offense and, and pitching and everything. So uh, the Yankees won five in a row and we only won three in a row. And that probably won't happen for a long time because everybody changes teams now and they, they don't keep the team together. So I don't know. Uh, it, it was, uh, I'm very, I'm very proud of, uh, of being with that team and, and the guys on the team. You know, a lot of people probably don't know this, but you were a pretty good football player back in the day. You chose baseball, and you signed with Kansas City, the Kansas City Athletics, but you were a pretty good football player back in the day. That that had to be a tough choice for you, deciding whether to go to college and play quarterback or, or, or play for the athletics. Yeah, I was. I had a, uh, I had a couple trips to uh, uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan, uh, I got a full ride there, and then I got a, also uh, another uh, division one was Florida State. But back then, I I got to play two sports, uh, uh, let alone I got to play football and baseball at both of those uh, colleges. Of course, back then, uh, a 5'10", 180-pound uh, 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 quarterback uh, uh, will not go today, but uh, it, it did back then. Dick, thank you so much for the time. We truly appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun reliving these great days of 72, 73, and 74. Happy birthday. Be well, be safe, and we'll talk to you soon. <laughs> thank you very much, Chris. Well, the 510 quarterback is back. How about that? That's a, I just had scholarships to Michigan and Florida State. These two little football programs. Yeah, they were. Yeah, they they didn't have legendary head coaches or anything back then. But uh, <laughs> that, that, you well, know. Florida State was still pretty small, but Michigan wasn't. That's Michigan uh, was as big as it gets when you talk about college football back in the day in the Big Ten. Yeah, and you're talking about the five ten quarterbacks. We see two of them play in the NFC West, and Russell Wilson and now Kyler Murray, former well. Could do we say he was an A? Like I don't even know how we how we classify Kyler Murray. A's draft pick. A's draft pick. That's all we got. But yeah, we're I seeing, got, we're hey, seeing I've, some I, of those guys. I, I've, I've seen Kyle Murray uh, up close from the sidelines. 
he looks so small. It's amazing how small he looks in the NFL. Yeah, and it's uh, going to be interesting to see what he does this season throwing the ball to now DeAndre Hopkins on that team. So uh, Cardinals got a good deal with that one. We'll see how his career progresses. I don't think he's going to be Russell Wilson, but he how might about, have a little about, career. How about Gronk to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers? Guess what? That's in the buying or selling. Oh, my God. This is so good. And the draft's tomorrow oh, night, too. We have to have a football season. Basically, Gronk said, I'm done with dealing with Bill Belichick. I'm sitting out. I'm retiring. Oh my, wait, Tom Brady's going to Tampa? I'm back in. <laughs> I got some theory. I got some I got some theories on that. We'll get to that. It's one of the buy it's in buying or selling. Can we get to buying or selling? It's time for buying or selling. Sell, sell. Right now with Chris Townsend on A's Cast Live. Right, I'm not gonna start off with Gronk. But we'll we'll get we'll 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 ease into that one. But I want to start by doing what I always do. I, I want to promote what's coming up next on Ace Cast. Now next is going to be the 27th win of the A season last year at home versus the Seattle Mariners, who, according to the Baseball Reference simulations, are only a half game behind the A's right now in 2020. Matt Olson, who's Car- on the pump? And what this game uh, that was from last year? a great question. I should have yeah. put that part down. I only put down the offense. I want to say it was Frankie Montas, but I, I will double check. Uh, but it's a game where Matt Olson crushes a three-run homer. Mark Hanna hits his eighth home run and the A's get their 27th win of the season. But but Thursday, you'll hear Ace Cast Live during the day, and then at night, you're going to hear the Legendary Moments pregame show with you, Ken Korak, and Ray Fossey. Following the pregame, we will air game one of the 1974 World Series versus the Los Angeles Dodgers, who won 102 games, and there will be a side-by-side broadcast with Ken Korak and Ray Fossey tomorrow night. And you can catch the game on NBC Sports California as well at 8 p.m. All right, so turn down the volume of the TV. No offense, Monty Moore. We love you. And listen to Ken and Ray and listen to Ray's insight, a man who played in this game. Yeah, You might see a a longer-haired, mustached Ray Fossey playing in this game. So, baseball historian Mike Lupica, if you remember him, he does a sport. He was on the Sports Reporters that was on ESPN, had a nice piece on MLB.com breaking down. Wait for it. We'll see if you know any of these guys and watch them. Who was the best pitcher of the 1960s? He broke down Juan Marichal, Bob Gibson, and Sandy Koufax. Now, I started with Sandy Koufax. Koufax from 1960 to 1966 went 137 60 with a 2.36 ERA and 1,910 Ks. He won three Cy Youngs and an MVP during that time. Now, Bob Gibson won 164 games, had a 2.74 ERA, 2,071 strikeouts. He won two Cy Youngs, well, and he won two World Series MVPs, and he won, and I think he won two World Series also. Juan Marichal won 191 games, a 2.57 ERA, 1,840 Ks, and he won the 1969 ERA title. Now, Lupica, Lupica never, he said we all won because they pitched in that era. He never said who was the best. Buying or selling, Sandy Koufax was the best pitcher of the 1960s. Uh, I'll buy that. Uh, but, once again, I'm not alive, so <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> I can't tell you I saw that. But, I mean, all three of them, obviously, Hall of Famers and great pitchers. I think I'm going to go with, I think I'm going to go with Sandy. 
Vandy in his prime was pretty much unhittable. Yeah, he uh, he, he had to retire early. And it was like, what was he, what was he 30, 31? Because of the back problems. Uh, if he, if no one's ever checked out the book, Left, uh, Lefty's Legacy uh, on, on Koufax, check it out. Good book. I'm with you. It's it's Koufax. Now, Bob Gibson, I'm not going to, you know, Gaylor Perry was in that era too. He was pretty, you know, he had a nice career as well. But, yeah, I'm going with Sandy with you. Now, another thing I've enjoyed during this time is the, the looking back at everything in baseball history. Now, OMB.com did an article on players who have won the MVP and the teammates that outshined them the same season. They discussed Ichiro winning the 2001 MVP over Brett Boone, Don Mattingly in 85 over Ricky Henderson, Joe Maurer over Justin Morneau in 2006, and then the one I'm going to bring up, how about Pete Rose winning his only MVP in 1973 over Joe Morgan, friend of this program. Pete Rose won his only MVP that year, and he led the league in at-bats, hits, and batting average, where Joe Morgan had more home runs, RBIs, runs, a better OPS+, plus, and an offensive war, or O-war, of 8, 8.0 to 6.1. Morgan went on to win the 75 and 76 MVP awards. Buying or selling, Joe Morgan should have won the 1973 NL MVP. You know, you're making me look at something, because I might... I might, uh, I might have another guy you want to throw in there. Uh, had a good little career. He's a good little ball player. Uh, let's see. What, so this is what, 1972? 73. The year they went to the, the they lost to the, to the Mets. Uh, my man Johnny Bench that year, 1973, 25 home runs, 104 RBIs. I see it was 72 where he had a monster year. Um, uh, I love Joe Morgan. So we'll, we'll, and Joe is a far better human being than Pete Rose. So I'll be buying that. Yeah. Uh, I looked at the numbers, went back and looked at Joe Morgan should have won that award. He should have had three so, MVPs. So, so bench in 72 wins the MVP with 40 jacks and 125 RBIs. And then in 74, he hits 33 home runs and 129 RBIs. <laughs> Can you imagine when's the last time we've seen a catcher? 1970. So Bench won two MVPs. Bench in 1970 had 45 jacks and 148 RBIs. What was up, Mitch? Mitch. I think what Mitch Garver had over 30 last year for the Twins. Uh, I don't remember a lot of times where players besides Pudge Rodriguez would hit a lot of home runs as the, from the catcher position. So when Johnny Bench did that, it's pretty incredible. So, yeah, I mean Johnny Bench was. Just, his stats were, I mean, he's incredible. I mean, Johnny Ben. I mean, and then then you then you take what he did defensively, and it's uh, it's it's truly one of the greatest things we've ever seen. What else you got? All right, so the Dodgers won 106 games last year. Well, they lost in the NLDS to the Nats. They lost Ryu, Kenta Maeda, but they did add Mookie Betts this offseason. Now I read an article saying that Mookie Betts could be more valuable in a shortened season. An 81-game season, this is just something they put in there, would cut the Dodgers' division title hopes roughly 40% in their World Series odds, basically in half. The Yankees have the next highest odds in the 81-game season at 8.1%, but there's a significant decline after. Because of that, bets would be more important to the Dodgers during a shortened 2020 season than he would have been prior to the shutdown due to the coronavirus pandemic. Buying or selling a shortened season increases the value for Mookie Betts. As, as in what? Just what he means to the Dodgers. Is he more valuable in a shortened year or a, a full 162 games? 
I would sell that. Wouldn't a great player be better in a hundred and I don't know fifty something games? Uh, I would think so. But they're they're pretty much banking on Mookie having a, a great year. And if if we play eighty to hundred games, they're banking on him to be an MVP caliber player and saying he'd be more valuable that way. I think he's more valuable if he plays one hundred fifty plus games. Yeah, I I, I I would sell that. I think he's more valuable because remember, in one hundred and sixty two games. That's where you. That's where your warts are, are shown, your deficiencies, and that's why mediocre teams and bad teams get boat raced because night after night after night, people start realizing what you're bad at and they take advantage of that. In a shortened season, it, it doesn't play like that. Like we've seen seen in with labor strife, but bad teams get exposed over six plus months of baseball you you know we'll, we'll see we'll see it's going to be interesting but yeah there's a reason why houston won 107 dodgers won 106 yankees won 103 would the twins win 101 uh yeah that sounds right 101 yeah they, they won over 100 games they took advantage of the bad teams especially not in their own division the, the royals and white Sox and tigers were awful all right you're worried yeah, well, let's get to the last one here. There have been a lot of bromances over the years. You got Steph and Clay, Jordan and Pippen, D Wade and LeBron, Brady and Edelman, the California boys. What about TV12 and Rob Gronkowski? Now, Gronk, Gronk was traded to the Bucks yesterday to be reunited with Tom Brady. Now, funny, Rob Gronkowski is currently the 24 7 champion in WWE that he won at WrestleMania. WrestleMania was supposed to happen at Raymond James Stadium in Tampa, Florida, where he'll be playing football next year. Gronk is going to get his revenge for not being able to show off at WrestleMania. The Bucks are getting a lot of attention, and this gives them even more adding Gronk. The Saints are the only team in their division that they have to worry about, even if they fit, even if this, the Bucks finished seven to nine last year. With Jameis Winston becoming the first quarterback in NFL history to go 30-30, so I'm going to ask you, buying or selling? The Tampa Bay Buccaneers will win Super Bowl 55. Oh, wow. <laughs> win the Super Bowl? I'm, I'm selling that. But Bruce Arians is a great offensive mind. Tom Brady's not done yet. And you're adding arguably other than what, Randy Moss, his favorite target of all time, and Rob Gronkowski? I can't wait to see, because now we're going to find out. I have always said this. Everybody who left Tom Brady failed. Pretty much. Whatever coach left Tom Brady, and it, I mean, it could be Romeo Cronell as a defensive coordinator. Tom Brady won football games, made everybody in New England a lot of money. He's arguably the greatest football player of all time, but all these coaches that leave the Patriots... They failed. Why? Well, they didn't have Tom Brady. Now, for fine, because remember, Bill Bill Belichick wasn't hell on wheels in Cleveland when he was the head coach. He didn't start winning until he had Tom Brady. Not even Drew Bledsoe, Tom Brady. Now he doesn't have Tom Brady. Let's see how much Bill Belichick wins. No, just to, to add fuel to the fire. Play, by the way, this is going to play to Bill Belichick's legacy. Oh, I, I agree. See who I want to the see who their quarterback is. The they don't have a quarterback right now. If the Patriots stink and they go on a run in the next couple of years of not being good, all the credit—it'll even—it'll even 
it'll even heighten the greatness that is Tom Brady. And I know Raider fans, you hate Tom Brady, but he is a Northern California kid, and uh, I, res- I, res- I respect him. He's a winner. Guy's a winner. He's the greatest winner of all time. Been to nine Super Bowls. To add fuel to the fire, Julian Edelman unfollowed Tom Brady on Instagram. <laughs> Did he really? That's what I read yesterday. The bromance is over. Last one. This right. is going to be quick. There's going to be no read up, read or anything. Buying or selling Joe, Bur- Joe Burrow goes number one in the NFL draft tomorrow night. Oh, yeah. That's that's a done. That's probably, the contract's probably already done. He'll be uh, – better question is what happens, to, what happens to Andy Dalton? Where does he go? New England? Uh, I thought Jameis would be the guy that New England would go after. How funny would that be if they start winning with Jameis Winston? Famous Jameis? Yeah. Uh, well, hey, talk about a guy who likes to steal seafood. He'll be able to take a lot of seafood up there in New England. <laughs> Very, too soon? Yeah. No, it's not too soon. We're, we're past the statute of limitation, I think, on that one. Crab legs, Dr. Crab legs. All right, remember, tomorrow night, 7.30, Legendary Moments pregame show. Yours truly with Ken Korak and the great Ray Fossey. 8 o'clock, start of game one of the 1974 World Series between the A's and the Dodgers. Ken and Ray are going to be on the call giving Ray's just going to be breaking down nuggets from this game one. And of course you can watch the game as they're doing it on A's cast on NBC sports, California, just turn down the volume that will do it for A's cast live. We'll see you tomorrow night at seven 30 right here on A's cast. This has been a presentation of the Oakland athletics.